Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems and what you can do to solve them. I'm Rob Whitlin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. In my opinion, Brian Christian is a fantastic author, and he has a particular knack for accurately communicating uh, difficult or technical ideas uh, from both math and computer science. Listeners really loved our episode about his book, Algorithms to Live By, uh, which is episode 48 from back in 2018. Uh, so when the team read his new book, uh, The Alignment Problem, and found it to be really insightful, getting him back on the show was a no-brainer. I think this episode will both be of interest to people who know a lot about AI, as well as those who know just a little, uh, and of interest to people who are nervous about where AI is going, uh, as well as those who uh, don't feel nervous at all. On the page for each episode, we always have a bunch of selected links uh, that can give you leads to learn more about all of the things that we've gone and talked about. Uh, but for this episode, Brian has really gone above and beyond uh, and inserted a host of links to all the specific research that he lays out in the conversation uh, inside the transcript itself. So if you want to chase up a blog post or a paper or a video or something like that, uh, go take a look at the full transcript on our site. Just before we get to Brian, I want to quickly let you know about the event Effective Altruism Global Reconnect, uh, which is coming up soon on the weekend of March 20th and 21st. As part of that event, we will be premiering our first ever video episode with Ezra Klein, uh, who will share his thoughts on effective altruism, long-termism, and journalism. But talks are not the main focus of the event. Rather, it's about giving and receiving feedback on people's projects and plans, uh, reconnecting with some old contacts, uh, and hopefully discussing interesting ideas with some new ones. It's being organized in particular for people who have made a change to their plans or, or volunteered uh, or donated a significant portion of their income uh, on the basis of effective altruist-flavored ideas, uh, either recently uh, or in the past. The organizers are especially keen uh, to reconnect with people who were more involved in, in effective altruism and the associated community uh, in the past, but more recently have, have drifted away from it. It is free to attend, and applications are open now until the end of Wednesday, March 17th. If you are relatively new to effective altruism and haven't taken concrete steps to have more impact just as of yet, there is also an event for you, uh, the EA Fellowship Weekend, which is on the following weekend, uh, March 27th and 28th. You can find out more about both of those events and apply to attend either one at eaglobal.org. All right, without further ado, here is Brian Christian. Today, I'm speaking once again with Brian Christian. Brian is a nonfiction author, most known for the best-selling books, The Most Human Human and Algorithms to Live By, which I interviewed him about back in 2018 for episode 48. Brian studied computer science and philosophy at Brown University and since 2012 has been a visiting scholar at UC Berkeley. His work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, The Paris Review, and The Daily Show, among many other places. Thanks for coming back on the show, Brian. Thanks for having me. All right. Today, we are mostly going to be talking about your new book, The Alignment Problem, and um, the various things that you learned while doing the research necessary to put it together. And I can happily confirm for listeners that The Alignment Problem is a really good way to learn a lot about how modern AI systems work and, and the problems that we're having to deal with to try to ensure that they have usually beneficial outcomes as they are becoming more powerful and embedded into more aspects of daily life all the time. But first off, tell us, uh, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's really important? Yeah, so I guess to answer that question, I'll start at a macro level. What I've been working on, I guess, my entire career has been this question of what computing teaches us about what it means to be human. And so that has now led me through three different books. My first book, The Most Human Human, is about communication. My second book with Tom Griffiths, which is called Algorithms to Live By, is about decision making, as you and I have discussed. And this book, The Alignment Problem, is about this question of values and so for me, this theme of what do we learn about ourselves from 
computer science, from AI, is really, I don't know, for me, almost a, uh, a religious question of a kind. <laughs> so for me, I think, you know, it's important both because we are living through a really remarkable time where, you know, I think it's the most exciting time to be interested in these philosophical questions about what it means to be human, you know, in the last 2,500 years or so. And also because, you know, as many listeners will sympathize, you know, there's an urgency now to some of these questions that there wasn't before. So yeah, that that's that's what I think about. Yeah, broadly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I guess what, what gap in the uh, market of books about AI were you, were you trying to fill with this one? I think that's an interesting way of framing it. I started really committing myself full-time to this book in the summer to fall of 2016. And so from what was happening then, you know, we had, for example, Superintelligence by Nick Bostrom, which was kind of pulling the fire alarm, so to speak, in terms of these long-term, you know, existential risks from AI. You also had books like Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill, which I think is kind of pulling a respective fire alarm in the kind of machine learning ethics community. And so it felt to me that there was an opportunity for a book that would kind of take that story further in in a couple ways. One was that I saw, from my perspective in 2016, I saw these two communities really colliding and that the questions of long-term AI safety and kind of present day big data ethics were increasingly part of I thought, a shared research agenda. And the rubber was really hitting the road. A lot of these things that were kind of thought experiments in 2013-14, we were actually seeing alignment problems in real life. And there was an actual, you know, technical AI safety research agenda underway. And so it felt to me like there was the beginning of a new chapter in that story, which was not about the reasons to be concerned, but it was about what we were actually doing. And so It also felt to me at the same time that there was a lot of discussion of AI and machine learning without the kind of pedagogical component. And so part of what I wanted to do was to actually kind of sharpen the discourse. And so the book ends up presenting a combination of this, you know, curriculum, if you will, this crash course and sort of what's what's going on in machine learning, as well as highlighting, for me, this this movement, this positive project of like, okay, we're, we're answering the, uh, the alarm here. So that's, that's really the story that I set out to tell was what, what comes after we've, you know, broken the glass and pulled the red handle. Yeah. So yeah, how's, how's the reception been? It's been good. I mean, it's been really interesting to me. This has been a theme throughout my career where I sort of think of myself as an ambassador on behalf of computer science to a more general public but then counterintuitively, the computer science community ends up being some of the most enthusiastic readers, even <laughs> though I think they know a lot of that story already. It's been interesting to me seeing the data science community receive this book, because from AI safety research to AI research is sort of an order of magnitude, but then also from AI research to data science more broadly. You know, every company has a data science group, you know, regardless of what it is that you're trying to do. And as these alignment problem questions become real, increasingly normal companies, whether you're selling eyeglasses online or whatever you're doing, need to be thinking about these questions of bias and, and representation and what's our objective function and all these things. So it's been 
I guess encouraging, maybe it's discouraging that these problems are now so widespread, but it's encouraging that there's interest from that community in what are the AI safety researchers up to and, and what of those ideas can we use in a more practical setting? Yeah, so I guess um, speaking of it being uh, very real, was there kind of an emotional arc to researching or writing this book at all? Because obviously this is some of the questions here <laughs> deal with important issues of like, is the future going to be good or could it potentially be very disastrous if we develop AI AI poorly? Did you ever feel a kind of despair for the future or just a lot of optimism? Both. I mean, really both, alternating waves. It was, for me, incredibly encouraging to see the community grow. I mean, in real time, as I was working on this book from, let's say, the summer of 2016, around the time that the Concrete Problems in AI Safety paper came out, and the, you know, the ProPublica report on Compass came out that same summer, through even by 2017, by late 2017, there was already this real groundswell. So, you know, people, people who went to NeurIPS in 2016 and said, oh, I'm working on safety, they would get this kind of perplexed reaction. But then by 2017, there was an entire day-long workshop on safety, and it was this normal thing. And so seeing the culture shift, the the actual momentum and sort of field building, that for me was totally exhilarating. And seeing this kind of first generation of AI safety PhD students matriculate was very hopeful. At the same time, we had, you know, the succession of results that I think many people no, you know, Alpha Zero, Mu Zero, GPT two, GPT three. And, you know, I can remember these moments, you know, when I first saw the GPT two results, there was this feeling of exhilaration, but also this dread in the pit of my stomach. You know, I remember walking around saying to my wife, like, I don't know how anonymous internet discourse is going to survive this. This feels like just a tidal wave of misinformation. We're rapidly approaching sort of a post-Turing test world. What is that going to be like? So it's both. I'm I'm more hopeful than not, honestly. But I still... Uh, it's touch and go. You know, it's touch and go. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Speaking of GPT, uh, I guess the new uh, GPT-3 has been making a big impression on people by producing what what's sometimes kind of amazingly human-like and seemingly very insightful uh, text on, on all kinds of topics. Have you been surprised by GPT-3's emergence? And do you think its existence has any kind of important implications for what what we're talking about? Or should it update us in some direction? Yeah. I mean, it certainly surprised me in terms of how directly you could just scale up the previously, you know, existing architectures and seemingly not hit some kind of asymptote. That for me, I don't remember a parallel in recent machine learning where we just take something like AlexNet and just make a 100x bigger one and it can recognize photos much more efficiently or something like that. The, the scaling aspect is very interesting. I think there is you know, a real concern, as I said, about misinformation and that sort of thing. The ability to produce human-level text at scale I think is going to do weird things to online discourse. It's funny. I mean, my first book, the Most Human Human is about the Turing test, and that was written in 2010 when chatbots were still basically a punchline. And so, yeah, what does it mean to sort of increasingly inhabit a post-Turing test world? How do we think about speech? That's going to be interesting. And from an AI safety perspective, there's one aspect to it that I think is kind of underappreciated, which is that I look at the GPT API as kind of the first... AGI product, 
it's kind of like the this AGI business model of we're going to sell access to this API and you can just do whatever you want. Yeah. And I guess you're saying it's, well, I suppose it's not like a fully general intelligence in that it can't go out and act in the world in the way that humans can. But I guess it's not it's not subject or domain specific because it can answer questions across all kinds of different areas of knowledge because it's studied text across such a wide range of topics. That's right. Yeah. And you're seeing, you know, this kind of blooming ecosystem of startups coming out using the API. And I think it's I think it's useful for our model of what AGI deployment will look like. You know, for example, there's a lot of theoretical papers that talk about this kind of cartoon relationship between a human called H and a robot called R. And the alignment problem is framed in this context of like, H wants to do something, so it builds R. Is R going to faithfully do what H has in mind? That's not the relationship that we have to GPT-3. GPT-3 is behind an API that can get cut off or, you know, at at OpenAI's discretion. We don't have the ability to kind of retrain it or uh, at will. So I think updating our model of like what the actual rollout of something like AGI will look like, you know, this sort of H&R dynamic is kind of the hobbyist dynamic. It's like someone is hacking in their garage, they build an AGI. <laughs> that may be very different, right, than a model in which there's some AGI in the cloud that you, you know, have to access. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, let's move on and talk more about the book directly. To help lay some of the groundwork for what's coming later, can you explain what a neural network does and how it actually works at a kind of nuts and bolts level? Because I mean, I've done many interviews with people about (laughs) AI and to some extent I'm like quite knowledgeable about it, but I still find sometimes I just can't really picture in my head like how does ML work? How does an AI work? Uh, And I I think uh, potentially there could be a lot of people in my situation who have this sort of superficial understanding, but then when you're like neural networks, like I guess I kind of know what that is, (laughs) but what what actually, what, what is it really? Yeah. So, and I I can't resist weaving in a little bit of historical information here, which is just, for me, one of the most remarkable things that I found doing archival research for this book was the personal history of Walter Pitts and Warren McCulloch, who sort of invented the idea of a neural network in the early 40s. And Walter Pitts was a homeless teenager living in Chicago, and Warren McCulloch basically became a kind of foster father figure to him. McCulloch was in his 40s, Pitts was like 17, 18 at the time that they wrote that paper. So just the the surprisingly poignant human drama behind these names that you recognize on a bibliography of AI, you know, McCulloch and Pitts, there's, there's this surprisingly rich personal story back there. And so their, their collaboration, Pitts was a logic prodigy and McCulloch was a neurologist. And I think that's helpful for thinking about kind of where the artificial neural network came from. It was this basic idea of, you know, we we knew by the 40s that neurons basically had this activation threshold, that they had all these in, electrical inputs and a single electrical output. And when the excitation of their inputs exceeded some threshold, then they would emit a pulse down the axon to whatever neurons were downstream. And so that's kind of the simplest way to think about a neural network in mathematical terms is that they have a bunch of inputs that are just numbers. They sum those numbers, and then if they're greater than some threshold, then they pass a number you know, down the stream, essentially. Otherwise, they do nothing. So, so it's firing kind of one or zero? It's not a continuous function at, each, at the point of each neuron? 
In the McCulloch and Pitt's original version, it's kind of this zero one thing because they were thinking about it from the perspective of Boolean logic. Later, we have moved to sort of continuous outputs and learned things like you need to have a nonlinearity in the output. So your output can either be sigmoidal or more recently, this kind of rectified linear output. And people have continued to experiment with different activation functions. The key thing is that there's some nonlinearity. Beyond that, there's a little bit of, it's sort of a little bit of voodoo in terms of which things appear to work best. Why doesn't linear work? Because if you have a bunch of linear neurons stacked in layers, you don't get the additional complexity because combining these different linear inputs, you still get a linear response. Oh, yeah, okay. That that makes some intuitive sense. Okay, so you've got kind of, I guess I imagine it in my head, you've got kind of like a visual input, say. So you've got like a pixel or some pixels going into some incredibly complicated mathematical function or formula with, I guess, like it's not not linear. So it's got a bunch of thresholds in it. So it goes into like a first neuron and then it like maybe fires or doesn't. And if it fires, then kind of the message continues on to another neuron in the next layer. And then maybe that one will fire or not based on, say, based on that information and other information coming into it. And then perhaps it'll fire or not, and then it will pass on to the next layer until it like goes out to the end and it has some output at the end of this <laughs> layers of neurons <laughs> that are firing and not firing and uh, signaling to one another. Is that kind yeah. of right? Yeah, that's basically right. I mean, of course, nowadays, you know, there's nothing actually firing as such. You know, it's all just linear algebra. Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, but that's that's basically the deal. Okay. How many how many nodes and connections are there in? an actual practical neural net like this? I'm trying to remember off the top of my head. So the sort of seminal deep neural network that kind of kicked off the deep learning revolution is called AlexNet, which is from October of 2012. That had something like 650,000 neurons and ballpark, I want to say like 60 million connections something like that. But that is child's play by a modern standard. So that's like 10 years ago almost. Yeah. So to put that into perspective, GPT-3 has something like 175 billion connections, which is many orders of magnitude greater. And in fact, we're now within three orders of magnitude of the actual synaptic complexity of the human brain. So GPT-3 has 0.1% as many connections as a human brain which if you kind of extrapolate the current doubling rate of model size implies that we're going to be training models with a you know approximate synaptic complexity of a human brain sometime by like 2022 2023 which is not very far away no no it's not <laughs> um <laughs> All right, let's let's push on to the substance of the book. So I'd love to go through the whole thing because there's so much uh, great material in there. But I think precisely because there is so much stuff, we don't have time for it all. So I'm going to try to pick up maybe a third of the way in, in the in the in the second big section called agency. The first subheading under agency is uh, about reinforcement learning, which is uh, one of the methods that we've used to to train neural networks to do what we want. Yeah, can you explain for everyone how reinforcement learning actually works, and perhaps what are some of its kind of key achievements that have made it interesting? So. The classic way of thinking about training a neural network is what's called supervised learning, where you show it a series of examples kind of one at a time, let's say pictures, you know, and you say, what's in this picture? Is it a cat, a dog, a truck, whatever? And then after each example, you compare the network's output to what you wanted the output to be. And through the magic of 
backpropagation, which is basically just the chain rule in calculus. You kind of fiddle with all the knobs. You know, you, you adjust all of the synaptic multipliers up and down in order to make the network's final output closer to what you think it should have been. And through this kind of magical process, if you just keep pulling random examples and you keep tweaking the knobs slightly, you actually get to something that, that generalizes to new examples. So that's, that's supervised learning. Now, reinforcement learning takes this problem and kind of goes one level of complexity deeper, which is to say, rather than being given a series of inputs and each, each input immediately correcting like, okay, you should have said this, you should have said that. Reinforcement learning has these temporal chains. So in a reinforcement learning scenario, you're in an environment making decisions. And those decisions affect the input that you see, right? So if you're in a maze, you turn left, or you turn right, that's going to have a direct bearing on what you see, you know, a second from now. Or if you play, play a move on a chessboard, that affects the position you're going to end up in. So already you're starting to increase the complexity here, where in the classic supervised learning thing, you just had these so-called IID, independent and identically distributed inputs that were just sort of streaming through. Now your inputs are themselves dependent on the actions that you take. So you've increased the complexity in that sense. And you've also increased the complexity because reinforcement learning, rather than about being about kind of minimizing the error on each individual example, is premised on the idea that your environment has these rewards in it. And you're trying to get as many rewards as possible. So you can think of it as like cheese in a maze or, you know, points in an Atari game or, how, you know, however you want to formalize this idea of rewards in the environment. But the rewards may only come after a long series of steps. And so you also have this kind of causal attribution problem of you've bumbled around in the dark and then suddenly you get 100 points and then you have to kind of do this credit assignment backwards of, okay, what, what did I do right? Uh, which of those yeah. actions was responsible for me actually succeeding? So for all of those reasons, it's a substantially more complicated problem and, you know, arguably better matches the complexity of being in a real world situation. Yeah. And I guess how has how's reinforcement learning worked? Uh, what, what are some of the kind of impressive things that, that we've been able to do with it? There's been, you know, a series of breakthroughs starting in really the 1970s. There's an idea called temporal difference learning, which says rather than waiting until you actually get the reward, you can learn from your own estimate changing. So for example, if I predict on Monday that I think it's gonna, there's going to be an 80% chance of rain Friday, and then on Tuesday, I think there's only going to be a 60% chance of rain Friday. Temp the idea of temporal difference learning is that you learn from that delta in your guess you don't have to actually wait until Friday to see what happens. You can already learn something by the fact that your later estimate is probably more accurate. So the same thing like in a, in a chess game, if you make a move and then your opponent replies and then you think, oh, crap, I'm probably going to lose now. Uh, you don't have to wait until you actually lose, uh, you know, uh, and you, yeah. you may your opponent may make an even worse blunder and you ultimately win. But you can learn something by the change in your prediction. So that's an example of some of the theoretical stuff, you know, some of the foundational stuff. But in terms of what we've actually been able to do with it, I mean, reinforcement learning in its modern incarnation is behind everything from 
AlphaGo to the systems that play Atari games to robotics, self-driving cars. Increasingly, social media companies like Facebook are using reinforcement learning to model how they send notifications out. So it used to be the case, for example, that social media companies used supervised learning to organize their news feeds and their notifications. They would have this kind of myopic prediction of would the user engage with this content, with what probability. They would use that probability to rank the content, just show you the stuff that would be the most salient or send you the notification that you'd be most likely to tap or whatever. But this had many problems, including burning people out and kind of forcing them to turn notifications off or leave the platform. So they now use a reinforcement learning paradigm where they are thinking about this kind of temporal dependency where if the user six notifications from now turns off notifications entirely, then you get no more quote-unquote points. So then they back-propagate to see well, what did we do, what did we do a while back that, that caused this like negative outcome further down the line rather than just considering each decision very in isolation. Exactly right, yeah. And you know, for me, there's this real ironic aspect, which is that Facebook uses this architecture called DeepQ Networks or DQN, which is exactly what DeepMind used to play those Atari games. Um, at superhuman level. So the exact same architecture is being used by Facebook to essentially play us. Um, <laughs> we, we are the Atari game in that situation. It's a, it's a bad look. Um, <laughs> yeah. So as I understand it, kind of the development of reinforcement learning allowed us to learn something about how humans operated because we were a bit, or psychologists were not sure how it was that humans learned from their experience because we have this same problem as well that maybe potentially days, weeks, months later after making a mistake, you actually get the ultimate outcome, which then should cause you to learn that you made a mistake. But then how do you attribute the negative outcome far down the line with, with the cause of it, which might have come far in the past? And I guess we learned how to solve this problem with neural networks or with reinforcement learning. And then we were like, oh, this is what the brain has been doing. It's like it has a model of what reward it's going to receive in future. And then when its estimate of the future reward changes, that causes it to be able to learn in that moment what mistake it has made because the change in the estimate is so much closer to the action that was either you know, a wise or, or a mistake. That's exactly right. And for me, I mean, this is like truly one of my favorite stories in the history of science. So in the 70s and 80s, there was this breakthrough in, you know, neural, I don't want to say imaging, but sort of the ability to monitor neurons in real time started to emerge in the 70s and 80s. And in particular, dopamine neurons became an intense subject of interest because we could now watch dopamine neurons spiking in real time in response to, you know, a monkey reaches into a bin and finds a little piece of banana or whatever, and then suddenly you see this spike. And so we started to get this data but it wasn't totally clear what the data meant. So there was this outstanding riddle in neuroscience of what was going on with dopamine. It appeared to be highly correlated with reward, but not exactly because the monkey would continue finding this fruit and the dopamine spike would go away, even though the monkey was still hungry or still wanted to eat it or whatever. So it wasn't exactly reward. Maybe it was surprise, but to make a long story short, it wasn't exactly a surprise either. And so there was kind of this mystery of we knew the dopamine system was powerfully related to kind of action and learning and had something to do with reward, had something to do with surprise. What was it? And these data came across the desk of Peter Dayan, who was involved in a lot of the early mathematics of reinforcement learning. And he and his colleagues at the Salk Institute were like, oh, 
the brain's doing temporal difference learning. It's adjusting its prediction, you know, to learn a, a guess from a subsequent guess. So, you know, when the monkey finds fruit that it didn't expect, it's like, oh, things were more promising than I thought they were going to be. And I should learn something from that. And to this day, I mean, the, like most biological things, there's a lot of uh, complicated details, but this is still the accepted story for the role of the dopamine system is that it's a temporal difference learning mechanism. So I think that's really remarkable from for thinking about kind of the deeper implications of AI because it shows us that we're not so different. We're not so different at all, you know, and and this mechanism has been found independently by evolution like several different times. And so to me it it tells us that we're not merely developing mathematical frameworks that solve engineering problems, but we actually are sort of onto the philosophical pater, you know, we really are discovering some of the fundamental learning mechanisms that evolution found. Yeah. What are some of the ways reinforcement learning can potentially go off the rails? Because uh, Stuart Russell, for example, who we've interviewed on this show, thinks that we kind of need to do away with reinforcement learning for sufficiently advanced agents. Can you help explain that story? So reinforcement learning is about how you develop a set of behaviors, which in, in the field is called a policy, for maximizing this reward. And the question, if you're uh, the human, you know, designer of a system is really, how do you design a reward such that the agent that optimizes for that reward will actually do the behavior that you want? So there's kind of a double optimization problem going on. You have some behavior in mind, you need to create a reward, which will in turn incentivize that behavior. And this turns out to be extremely difficult. Every researcher has their own sort of stash of horror stories of how the, you know, the best intentions uh, went awry. A favorite example of mine, there was a group of Danish researchers in the 90s that were developing a reinforcement learning agent to ride a virtual bicycle to, towards some destination. And they realized that if you just give it, you know, 100 points for reaching the destination, it's going to have no idea what to do. Until it gets there somehow magically by at random chance, it won't even know it's on the right track. So they decided to give it these kind of additional incentives for making progress toward the goal. Sounded reasonable. You know, they let it optimize. They came back, you know, after the long weekend, checked in on it. And the program was riding the bike in circles as quickly as possible. Because the 50% of the time that it was going around the circle towards the goal, it was getting points. And it turned out to be just a lot easier to do that really fast than it was to actually learn how to ride the bike in a straight line. I guess the, the narrow issue there is that it wasn't symmetrically losing points as it moved away from the goal. Um, Precisely. And I suppose you could fix that. But then I suppose the, the story that we've seen is just that it's like you fix that and then there's another problem and then you fix that and then there's another problem. It's like it's hard to actually develop a reward that prevents hacking or misbehavior completely. That's right. So, you know, it is kind of this game of whack-a-mole. There has been a lot of theoretical work, including by Stuart Russell himself in the 90s, on how you can modify a reward function such that you won't change the optimal policy in that environment. And here, one of the key insights is basically you need to reward states of the environment, not actions of the agent. And so it's exactly what you're describing. You need to symmetrically subtract points for going away from the destination if you're rewarding them for going towards the destination. So Really, what you're rewarding is the agent's position, not their behavior. 
I think this is a very deep result that has implications, not just in AI, but for thinking about human incentives and parenting mm. and things like this. <laughs> um, so, so you, you have, to, have to focus on outcomes, not process? Yeah. So, you know, one of the examples that I give is my friend and collaborator, Tom Griffiths, when his daughter was really young, his daughter had this kind of toy brush pan and she would, she swept up some stuff on the floor and put it in the trash and he praised her like, oh, wow, good job. You know, you swept that really well. And the daughter was very proud. And then, you know, without missing a beat, she dumps the trash back out onto the floor (laughs) in order to sweep it up a second time and get the same praise a second time. And so, you know, Tom intelligence. Exactly. Yeah. Tom was uh, making the classic blunder of rewarding uh, her actions rather than the state of the kitchen. Right. So if he praised how clean the floor was rather than her sweeping itself. So again, there are these surprisingly deep parallels between humans and machines. Yeah. So increasingly people like Stuart Russell are making the argument that we just shouldn't manually design rewards at all. Because we just have too bad a track record. Yes, it's it's just one can't predict the possible loopholes that will be found, and I, I think generally that seems right. Yeah, I guess we'll talk about we'll talk about some of the alternative architectures later on. Yeah, I, I guess um, with the example with a child, it's very visible what's going wrong, and so you can usually fix it. But I guess the the more perverse cases where it really sticks around is when you're rewarding process or activity within an organization that it's sufficiently big that it's not entirely visible to any one person, or, yes. or within their power to fix the the incentives. You start rewarding people going through the motions of achieving some outcome rather than the outcome itself. Of course, rewarding the outcome can be also very difficult if you can't measure the outcome very well. So you can end up just stuck with not really having any any nice solution for giving people the right motivation. But yeah, we, we, we see the same phenomena in, in AI and in human life yet again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And you have this problem in human organizations where you can't exactly take someone's salary away if they screw something up. <laughs> so it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work the same. You don't have the same control over the point system in that sense. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's important to remind people that the term alignment, which Stuart Russell coined in 2014 to refer to this problem, he's borrowing that term from economics. So the economics literature in the 80s was talking about how do you align the values within an organization? How do you align the incentives of two parties in a contract? And so these questions were were human questions first. And I think yeah, they will They will be human questions long after we uh, declare victory on the technical part of the problem, if, if we do. Okay, so the next section of the book is about a kind of shaping the behavior of, of AI. And in particular, it talks a lot about this issue of sparse rewards, which is what we've been talking about, where you don't get very much feedback on the outcome until, say, very far down the line. And you want to get like, you know, you won the game, you lost the game. And so you have to figure out some solution to this. There's a great story in the book about some kind of simulated animals that suffer this issue of only getting sparse reward. And so they have to evolve to figure out how to behave given that. And they developed a whole wide range of sometimes kind of perverse and strange behaviors and going down very different evolutionary tracks to survive. Can you can you tell us about that one? Yeah. So this is this classic study from the early 90s by Dave Ackley and Michael Littman. And they were interested in the interaction of evolution and learning. And so if you think about, you know, biological evolution, there are certain things that, you know, make an organism fit for its particular environment, you know, not getting killed, you know, reproducing, etc. But there's a non-obvious way that that environmental fitness gets translated into people's actual desires and goals. So, 
you know, why is it that we want to get a raise or drink a glass of wine or play the flute or whatever it is that whatever the things are that people do has some non-obvious relationship to, you know, this more sort of Darwinian notion of, yeah. Yeah. Not like I'm going to drink the wine so I can reproduce more. (laughs) Right. In some like vague way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that would be the way you'd think about it if you were explicitly kind of maximizing the reward for which you were designed. But the whole thing is we have all of these proxies that we've developed because because the reward of reproducing would be so far down the line. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, I mean, evolutionary psychologists think about where did the where did our actual desires come from and what's the relationship they have to the environment? And so you can think about the same question, you know, in a kind of AI reinforcement learning context by thinking about okay, we have some environment. What would a good reward function be such that agents that optimize that reward function, you know, thrive? And there's like a very non-linear, non-obvious connection between the fitness function in the environment, whatever that might be, and the things that the agents are trying to do. So this particular study, Dave Ackley and Michael Littman were looking at an environment in which you had these simulated agents on a 2D grid. They could walk around, they were occasionally predated by these monsters they could you know hide or they could reproduce different things like that and their reward function would be a kind of you know genetic material so to speak so when they reproduce their quote-unquote child would have to have a reward function that was some combination of the reward functions of the two parents plus some random mutations and they just kind of ran this ran these little worlds just kind of to see what would happen and all of these weird kind of quirky, non-obvious things happen. So, for example, agents that learned that food was good would sometimes succumb to the problem of eating all of the food in the environment and then starving later. And so the reward function was specified in terms of like going north, south, east, and west on this grid. So the most successful agents had these very bizarre reward functions that said like food is good but only if you approach it from the north or south you know not if you approach it from the east or west which is just a would, hack just, you know? just 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 to slow them down it kind of reminds me of people say any diet potentially can work to help you lose weight because it forces you to think about things and like make some choices and not others people say you know you should only eat blue things today and only eat red things and it's just it's completely arbitrary it just like forces you to eat more slowly <laughs> Yeah. And right. So they just, you could see these superstitions, right? And they didn't necessarily map to reality, but they produced useful behavior, right? So exactly what you're saying. Um, There was a case of what Dave termed tree senility, which was that these agents, they, they were attracted to trees. Now, this turned out to be a useful strategy because the trees afforded them protection from the predators. But they didn't know this. They just knew that they liked being around trees. And it happened to afford them this survival thing. But there's an interesting interaction between their reward function and their behavior, which is to say, over their lifespan, they got better and better at optimizing their behavior for their reward function. And by the end of their life, they were so good at being near trees that they never left the trees, starved and died. And Dave called this tree senility. Um, Hold on, but... So they evolved to have a strong attraction to the trees in order to avoid being attacked by monsters because they can hide in the trees. But then that tendency got so strong that they could no longer leave the forest to find food. But it seems like wouldn't, wouldn't they face, wouldn't they end up at some kind of middle ground where they kind of want to be near the trees, but not if they're hungry, then they got to like leave the trees? Yes. Well, the key thing in this particular case is that their behavior slowly improves over time 
at optimizing whatever their reward function is. So by the time they got essentially good enough at being near trees all the time, they were past their kind of reproductive age. And so it didn't harm the fitness of that society. So that's kind of why he said senility, because it was like it affected the old members. It's an aging issue. Oh, I see. So you're saying, so perhaps they evolved between generations to have a strong attraction to trees, but then over each individual's lifetime, they spend so much time around the trees that they can no longer survive outside of the trees. And so they like de-skill effectively over the course of their life. And now they're just stuck in the trees and then they starve because they can't leave to get food. (laughs) That's right. That's exactly it. That's super interesting, yeah. And so I think, you know, part of the part of the reminder to, you know, people who work on reinforcement learning in more conventional settings is that you want to think about not only the ultimate policy that this agent develops at the end, but what is the actual trajectory of them learning that. Often in research settings, we just kind of throw away everything that the agent did until they became, you know, maximally expert. But in the real world, you know, Kids exist, they share the world with us and they're still figuring things out, but they can make real mistakes, they can hurt themselves, they can hurt others, etc. So thinking about the interaction between the reward and not just the final behavior that comes out of it, but like the actual entire learning trajectory. Yeah, it's very interesting that I guess over time, well, you can become like very good in one narrow domain, but then like de-skill in others. I guess if you didn't catch it, the issue was that, oh, the reason this could continue was that they'd reproduced before they reached the age where they couldn't leave the trees. It reminds me, there's some species, I can't remember the name of it. I think it's a rodent of some sort that gathers in some location and then they... uh, they fornicate, uh, or at least the, the males fornicate so aggressively and without breaks that they literally die of exhaustion in the meantime, leaving only the females alive for that generation. But by that stage, they've done what they have to do to propagate their genes. And so this behavior can continue indefinitely, even though it like immediately kills the, uh, kills, kill, kills the males of the species each, each, uh, each year. Sorry. Yeah, so I, 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 I don't have a, that much of a reaction to that other than, yeah, evolution is very strange. Yeah, pretty, some pretty strange things. Let's push on to the next section, which is about the importance of having kind of curiosity in order to get actually intelligent behavior from AIs. So yeah, how is it that AIs that lack curiosity and a preference for novelty kind of can cause them to fail to be able to do what what seem like basic things? Yeah, so I'll connect here to an intuition that comes from kind of human infant learning, which is that you know, humans exist in a world that has these explicit rewards, whether it's, you know, your parent says, I love you, or your boss gives you a raise, or you, whatever it might be. But we also have, I mean, certainly if you look at kids, the way that they're motivated to just sort of poke objects, bite things, you know, bang stuff on the ground, there's not any clear connection to, oh, this is how they're going to get praise, or this is how they're going to get food or whatever. There seems to be a kind of innate drive. And we've observed the same thing with animals. You know, animals will press a lever to get a food pellet, but they'll also press a lever to look out a window. Or rats will cross an electrified area just to get to a new room, just to see what's over there. And so there's this mounting evidence for these kinds of internal rewards or these intrinsic motivations. So that connects to the reinforcement learning literature in a really interesting way. So If you look at the, there's the seminal DQN paper by DeepMind where they announced in 2015 that they had this single agent architecture that could play 60 different Atari games, the majority of them at superhuman level. 
And this was a very big deal because it was the same, the same exact program, the same exact network randomly initialized could learn not just a single game, but any game. However, if you scroll down the figure from their nature paper, you notice that at the very bottom of the list is this game called Montezuma's Revenge, where DQN scored a grand total of zero points. Um, <laughs> so the same agent that was superhuman in pinball and breakout and boxing, etc., didn't manage to score a single point. Couldn't get off the, the starting point. Exactly. And so what was it about this particular game, Montezuma's Revenge? And Montezuma's Revenge has what's called sparse rewards. So it takes you have to do a lot of things right in order to get the first explicit kind of points of the game. You have to climb this ladder, run across this conveyor belt, jump a chasm, swing on a rope, dodge an enemy, climb another ladder and jump up all to get this little key that gives you, you know, 100 measly points. Yeah. So, so effectively, I suppose it tries learning by like a million times just playing the game kind of randomly and then seeing, does any of this stuff work? But it just like it tries a million times and at the end of every one, it's got zero points. <laughs> it's exactly. like, well, I've really got nothing to work with here to figure out where do exactly. I even begin? So yeah, how does it even know that it's on the right track, right? This whole, yeah. The whole kind of learning paradigm is based on the idea that you'll bumble into rewards somehow and then start to kind of work from there. So The question was, how do you overcome this problem of sparsity? And, you know, the funny thing is humans have no problem playing this game. It's it's actually a very unfun game, but uh, we have no problem (laughs) knowing what to do. And there's many different reasons for that. But part of it is just that we have this kind of intrinsic motivation of we want to know what happens if we get our character over to this part of the screen or we interact with this object or we, you know, go into a a new room, what's over there. All of that is at least as motivating to a human player as the points in the corner of the screen. And so this group from DeepMind decided to borrow, you know, explicitly from the cognitive science of what we know about babies and say, okay, we know that babies exhibit this thing called preferential looking, which is that, you know, from just like two weeks old, if you follow their eye movements, they will prefer to look at something they've never seen before. And so there's, you can think about that as being like a kind of internal reward mechanism. And so let's do the same thing. And I'll hand wave through some of the mathematical details. We can get into it if you want. But basically, they created this supplementary reward system for their agent that would give it the equivalent of in-game points just for seeing an image on the screen that it had never seen before. And suddenly, now you have enough of a little breadcrumb trail to know you're on the right track. Yeah, it can, it can grab onto this thing because it's like, well, I've got to move my character to get to new places. And then that gives it some intermediate reward from which it can build. That's exactly it. Yeah. And so once you plug in this kind of novelty mechanism, suddenly you've got enough to get the learning process going. And this agent, which previously got zero points, can now play you know, most of the game. Yeah, I guess this would have helped the the creatures with tree senility if they had a preference for doing things that are different, not just staying at the tree. They got to like move outside and maintain some diversity of behaviors, and they they wouldn't become so specialized that they can, they eventually can't find food anymore. That's um, right. We've got this issue of um, having having some mice in our house that we're trying to deal with, and they they keep coming up to this like they have to climb up the stairs to get to this room that has no food in it, 
no good nesting places, no water. There's nothing for them there, but they keep coming <laughs> up there. And I'm like, why? Why are you doing this? And I wonder if they're just literally curious. They uh, they have this instinct that they've got to go like find something else. And so they just keep coming up to this room where there's no rewards for them. Uh, I guess it could be different mice each time. <laughs> so this was, this was in my mind as I was reading this section of the book. <laughs> um, That's funny. Yeah. Okay. So when you add this tendency, it, this this can also lead to perverse outcomes potentially. Uh, you mentioned that you can potentially get an AI that's just hooked on this artificial novelty. So they, they can potentially get stuck just standing in front of a TV screen uh, in a game. Can you, can you talk about this issue? Yeah. So this has been something that's come up in a lot of papers. There's a paper from 10, 11 years ago by Laurent Orso, who's um, DeepMind, talking about you know, an agent that doesn't understand that randomness is a fundamental property of the universe could end up getting stuck flipping coins forever because it thinks there's some kind of deep uh, structure to the universe <laughs> that it needs to unpack uh, and it never can. And we've also seen this demonstrated in kind of video game environments. Um, there's a group from Berkeley and OpenAI that put basically a TV screen inside one of the maze environments that their agent was trying to escape. And the TV screen totally hijacks this novelty reward. And I mean, it's, it's very striking because you can watch videos of their agent navigating this maze. And as soon as it swings around such that the TV is in view, it's just paralyzed, <laughs> just glued to the TV screen because that it's is providing, so yeah, it's just this, you know, mainlining this visual novelty, which is much stronger than it would experience by sort of wandering around. And I think this, to me, is very interesting. I mean, we know that there are connections between kind of novelty-seeking behavior and the dopamine system. We also know there are links between addiction and the dopamine system. And for me, it's very striking that we're now starting to get to a point where the agents that we're building and the environments that we're training them in are sufficiently complex or sufficiently, you know, quote-unquote human-like that even their pathologies are recognizable. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, there's obviously there's lots of reasons why people might become couch potatoes and spend a lot of time watching TV. But do you think that this is one of them, that people might have a preference for seeing new things and the TV just constantly supplies you with new changing images? I really do. And I, you know, I, I have this kind of crank theory, which I don't know if this is actually substantiated in the research or not. But I think this is the same reason that campfires are mesmerizing. That, you know, it's just this kind of endlessly chaotic, unpredictable visual stimulation. I think most of us have had that experience of just getting sort of lulled into a sort of trance by a campfire. Like watching the waves or something. Watching the wave. Water is a perfect example as well. Or rustling, you know, leaves or something. And yeah, I, I went down a research wormhole trying to figure out what do we know about the effect of, you know, campfires on the visual system? I don't know how well it's been you know, established from a research perspective. But that's my that's my theory. And I think, yeah, I mean, for me, it's just remarkable seeing how the reinforcement learning community is on the one hand, borrowing some of these ideas from cognitive psychology, but they're also kind of contributing back these formal models. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess the solution to this issue is to give the AI a more sophisticated idea of what novelty, what what things that really are new and what things are interesting and what things are boring in the same way that like humans usually get bored of watching TV because like at the same point, at some point on a deeper level, it becomes too much the same. And and I guess eventually you could, maybe maybe it seems like with all of these things, formalizing them becomes very difficult. So teaching teaching it why a TV is actually boring might be quite hard, but but that that seems like the way forward with that. 
Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, there have been approaches to this where, you know, you can look at what are the user controllable aspects of the environment. So there was a group from Berkeley that that had this very clever approach, which was you give a network two successive frames of, of the game, and then you ask it if it can predict what user action was picked between frame one and frame two. And the idea was that this this would eliminate aspects of the visual environment that are not user controllable. And so then we'll make our novelty detector particularly latch onto these things. So there are there are sort of clever formal approaches here, but I don't think we have like a unified uh, story yet. So I, I'm very curious to see about that. Yeah, along those lines, uh, something that I thought was very memorable from the book was you describing how in order to develop curiosity, I think, I guess, in humans and AI as well, you have to kind of have two systems that are somewhat at odds with one another. One that is like seeking surprise, seeking something that's new and unexpected. And then, but then in order that you can't be surprised too easily, you have to have another system that is constantly trying to predict everything as well as it can. So in a sense, that, that part is trying to like minimize surprise by predicting everything and forecasting everything exactly accurately so it can never be surprised. And then the other side has to go like fight against that and find things that are surprising nonetheless, despite your best efforts at forecasting. And, and exactly. I think that is, that, that is what's going on in the human brain in, in, in some sense. And I guess it's also how we've had to design these machines too. Yeah, it, it certainly rings true to me, right? I think, you know, it's obvious that, you know, evolution wants to be as good of a predictor as possible. You know, you're, you you want to predict what's going to happen to you. But at the same time, as you say, there is kind of this funny internal combat where you also want to seek experiences that will be informative. And so, yeah, you can kind of render that as this agent that's almost these two adversaries the action selector, which is trying to surprise the predictor and the predictor, which is trying not to be surprised. And this turns out to work actually really well in reinforcement learning settings. So it may well be that the brain is is, is like that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I can notice a perverse aspect of this in, in myself when it's like when there's an area of knowledge or debate or discourse that I know really well. And it's like you've kind of settled on what is kind of probably the true boring thing, the, the unexpected, boring, real conclusion <laughs> to, to some issue that has been controversial to you in the past. Then it's like, you're like, I'm bored of this. I have to like find new takes, something yes. new to say about this issue. And then you're like, but what's left? What's left is just bad takes, like dumb, unexpected, contrarian takes. It's like, I suppose like the, the boring thing would be, well, to like lower house prices, we have to build more houses and then we'll have more places <laughs> we will live. No, but that's like, that's too tedious after a while. Now you need to like, no, to like to lower house prices, we have to burn down houses or something that's unexpected, <laughs> something you haven't heard before. Well, I think it's, for me, I get this kind of philosophical consolation thinking about this because the difference between these internal rewards like novelty seeking and and you know self surprise and all of that the, the biggest difference between those and the external rewards is that they're kind of ephemeral they go away once you see the image you no longer get the novelty reward when you see it the second time and that's like there's something very kind of significant about that kind of non-stationary ephemeral quality and i think that partly explains it explains the treadmill of of happiness right that when you were a baby, merely moving your arm in front of your face and being able to predict that it would now cover your eyes and then uncover your eyes is like delightful, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and like later you come to take for granted that you can control your body and so forth. And you think about, yeah, I, for me, I mean, I remember my writing mentor in undergrad. I asked him, does it ever get easier to write books as you go through your career? And he says, 
No, because, you know, your skill improves, but also you become unsatisfied with the, the, the tricks with that what you can do, you know, exactly. And so I don't know, it make it makes sense to me that, you know, happiness should be a moving target. You know, it makes evolutionary sense. It sort of makes kind of philosophical sense. So what happened when researchers pitted two agents that were purely driven by curiosity to play the computer game Pong? Uh, so, yeah, there was a lovely experiment of what would happen when you put these essentially non-zero-sum agents into a zero-sum environment. And so you have two novelty-seeking agents, but they're forced to play Pong against one another. What do they do? And this beautiful thing emerges, which is a de facto collaboration where they work together to create these really long rallies. Um, <laughs> and uh, because I, I, this is one of the things that's really interesting is that previous reinforcement learning work in Atari required you to signal that the agent had died. But if you're a novelty-seeking agent, then the fact that death starts you back at the beginning of the game is intrinsically boring. And so it's, intri- it's an intrinsic punishment to be sent back to the beginning of the game. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So I guess they end up producing rallies that are just more and more random and, and, and strange and like peculiar angles and things like that because they, they exactly weren't seen right. recently. Yeah. So they sort of work together to get as far away from this starting state as possible. So yeah, creating weird velocities, weird angles, weird positions. And if this is the study I'm remembering, they, the rally goes so long that it breaks the Atari emulator and you just start seeing random garbage on the screen, which is if you're a novelty-seeking agent, like, oh, yeah. totally delightful. They must love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, in the, in the book, you suggest that potentially an agent with a lot of curiosity and desire for new knowledge and new information might kind of be the most suitable design for creating a more generally intelligent uh, AI. Yeah, why do you think that is? Yeah, so I mean, this goes back to work that uh, Laurent Osso and Mark Ring did in 2010-2011. They were looking at this AI architecture called IXE, which is kind of a theoretical model for a you know uncomputably powerful agent, and trying to reason about you know even if such a thing could never actually exist in reality, might it still be possible to predict its behavior in certain settings? And they were thinking about this question of wireheading, which is essentially, you know, could an agent short circuit its reward system and, you know, find hacky ways to give itself infinite reward? So they were thinking about different reward structures that this agent could have. So, you know, if you had an ostensible basketball playing agent that you rewarded for getting a high score... A reasonably intelligent basketball agent would learn to get good at basketball, but a super intelligent basketball playing agent would learn that the score, quote unquote, is just some electrical current flowing through the scoreboard. And so it would learn to, you know, like resolder the scoreboard and just make it say (laughs) 9999 or whatever. And so there were a lot of ways in which an agent could sort of deceive itself or optimize for some proxy that wasn't the real thing that the designers intended. And in almost every case, they found it hard to imagine that the agent would avoid one of these kind of degenerate scenarios. But the one case where things seemed to go, you know, according to plan was the idea of what they called a knowledge-seeking agent. And so this is the idea of an agent motivated to kind of learn as much about the universe as possible. And 
The beautiful thing about the knowledge-seeking agent is that it can't self-deceive. Because if it manipulates its own inputs in any way, well, it's, it's just cutting off its access to the real world. And that's where all the surprise and kind of information comes from. So this idea that the knowledge-seeking agent might be uniquely immune to forms of self-deception. It might be immune from the sort of escapism or kind of retreating into this kind of virtual fantasy that other types of agents might have. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that it would be safe to build a superintelligent knowledge-seeking agent. Yeah, because one of these might just pull apart the world, right? To like learn everything that it can about it. Exactly, yeah. What's in the core of the Earth? Let's find out. Or let's uh, <laughs> you know, build the world's largest telescope by harvesting you know, the entire solar system, or, you know, whatever, right? So it's not yeah. necessarily safe per se, but it conforms to this idea of wanting to sort of keep one's eyes open, right? Not, not wanting to self-deceive, not wanting to sort of pull this escapist veil over one's eyes. Yeah, it, it might do a lot of stuff and kind of interesting stuff from our point of view. Interesting stuff and, yeah, you know, not not at least fall into some of the potholes, I should say, that some of the other designs might. Yeah, couldn't it just, though, um, kind of hack its own visual input or something and then, like, push random information into it so that it's constantly surprised? I suppose you'd have to be careful about how you specify what knowledge is, I guess, or what, what, what is actually novelty and, yeah, what, what is learning. Yeah, I remember I talked to Laurent about this paper and I, I was asking him questions like this. I asked him, you know, might the agent be incentivized to essentially bonk itself on the head and forget everything it knew so that it was easy to relearn and get all the pleasure of relearning <laughs> everything for the first time rather than working out, you know, the 20th decimal point and some constant. And, you know, these are the sorts of things you have to worry about. And so, you know, it's not, it's by no means foolproof. And as I say, it's not even necessarily safe. But it does avoid at least some of these kind of wireheading issues that more conventional kind of extrinsic reward-based agents can fall into. Let's move on to the last third of the book, which is titled Normativity, and I guess deals with these issues of AI safety and how do we move forward, trying to make AIs aligned with, with human interests more explicitly. Yeah, the first uh, subsection of that is about imitation. So yeah, one way that we might try to get AIs that are very powerful, but kind of continue to behave in ways that we that we like them to would be to try to get them to kind of imitate how we behave or, or just learn from us directly, for example. How has is, how is that approach gone so far? Because quite a few people have worked on that that idea. Yeah, so this is a very intuitive idea. And this this starts to get us into what you and I foreshadowed in our discussion of reinforcement learning, which is if it's unsafe to manually build a reward function, how else might we try to instill the behavior that we want? And so the simplest approach is just to say, do what I do. And this has a surprising history going back to the early 90s when a student named Dean Pomerlow at Carnegie Mellon taught a car to steer in the lanes of the highway through this method of imitation of notice the lane markings on the road and do what I do. You know, just pay when attention you see to similar lane markings. Exactly. Just move the wheel the way I move the wheel when I see that sort of thing. And amazingly, for the early 90s, he ran this neural network. It was like 30 by 30 pixel input running on a computer that had a tenth of the processing power of a first generation Apple Watch. And he was able to drive the highway between Pittsburgh and Lake Erie for two hours without having to intervene. Did he get permission to go on the road with this thing? I kind of, I, I, I couldn't no, believe it. I was I like, something, so. something's gone wrong here. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I think it was more of a better to ask forgiveness than permission I see. situation. This was like 
around sunrise on a Sunday. So he picked a time where there would be few people on the road. And the car he was using was a Hummer because they had some DARPA contract. And so he sort of figured... Hummer is very big, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, this giant sort of military vehicle. So I guess the idea being, if you see this giant military vehicle at six in the morning on a Sunday, you just kind of leave it alone. Yeah. Interesting. So, Ask for forgiveness, not permission. I, I like that saying kind of in general, but I'm not sure whether it does <laughs> entirely apply to fatal traffic accidents. <laughs> okay. I'm not anyway, sure things it went applies well. to yeah, AI safety research <laughs> in general. Yeah. No, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it was... Um, but 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 things worked out. That's kind of the interesting thing is that this this car that was so basic in its training and so basic in its hardware capacity was able to drive safely on this road. Yeah. And, you know, I, there's some important caveats like it was not doing the gas or the brakes. It was not doing lane changing. It was just steering between the dotted lines. But still, you know, for 1990, 91 or something, I mean, it's yeah, he's he was courageous to be the, the human test pilot. And it shows kind of the power of this approach that it's really hard to develop representations of, you know, 3D space and model the dynamics of the car, blah, blah, blah. But if you just do what I do in this situation, that gets you pretty far. And so fast forward to the present, every Tesla has something that Tesla calls shadow mode, which is basically kind of a rebranding of the same idea, which is to say every Tesla with autopilot hardware above a certain level, even when you turn the autopilot off, the computer is still calculating what it would do if it were driving the car and constantly comparing that. So, so it's, it's learning from your example? Yes. Oh, right. Okay. Wow. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. So it has, it has cameras there. It's just running this thing, constantly figuring out, learning from you, how you drive. And then I guess the autopilot updates and then drives more like you would? Yeah. I don't know that it's personalized in that way. Um, my guess is that it sends these giant batches from a number of different cars back to Tesla HQ and they sort of throw them all together into one update. There's also yeah, this... Um, it, yeah. They do have to figure out how to automatically identify bad drivers and exclude mm. them from the training data. I was, I was going to say, you could end up with this, I guess, you know how people say that uh, people end up resembling their pets. You'd end up with a terrible driver whose autopilot ends up resembling its awful driving style. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad they kind of average it out. Yeah. And so there's a funny kind of, it's not exactly a chicken and egg problem, but you have this thing of, if you had a formal model of what good driving looked like, then the problem would already be solved. So how do you identify bad drivers knowing that you don't exactly know what good driving is. You could probably say, okay, this person's a statistical outlier. We'll toss them out of there. They're either James Bond or really bad at driving. Right. Okay, before we get to like maybe where that technology has advanced to today, this approach, while cool in some ways, also had massive problems and uh, and failed pretty quickly in in real life. Uh, So yeah, can you explain why that is? Yeah, so this gets back to what you and I were talking about earlier in the context of how reinforcement learning is more difficult than supervised learning. So the key thing here is that in in a reinforcement learning setting, the action that you take influences the future data that you will see. And so this turns out to be the, the real Achilles heel of imitation learning, because if the imitator is not perfect, then it will make some error, however subtle, but that error will result in it seeing something that's slightly different from whatever it might have seen when it was following your example. It takes it outside of the training set. Exactly right. Exactly right. And so there is this real stability issue. Um, It's it's known in the field as cascading errors, where once you make your first problem, 
all bets are off because now, you know, let's say you slightly misjudge a curve or something on the road. Now your your car is angled weirdly and it's never seen what a human driver would do when the road is like angled weirdly because relative the human to the wouldn't car. Have done that. The human wouldn't have made that mistake. And so it has no idea how to recover. And so this is um, the kind of dangerous aspect of imitation learning is that, you know, you, you walk this, this golden path, but if you step off... Catastrophic failure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but th- there's a, an amazing way to, to solve this, which I guess it's kind of intuitive in retrospect. And apparently, if I remember correctly, AIs can learn, basically, you can fix this issue with like very few hours effectively of, of training, where so you, you kind of do this mixed thing where the AI is driving the car according to like what it's learned uh, using this imitation thing initially. But the car is like sometimes controlled by the AI and sometimes controlled by by a person who's kind of correcting it. So you get a thing where where the, the AI will initially will make this problem where it like deviates somewhat and then like deviates a lot. But then the person, as that's happening, will show what it what they would have done in the situation yeah. that the in, in the messy situation that the AI has now gotten itself into. And then very quickly it learns how to recover. That's exactly it. Because because now now it's getting some like out of or some like odd situations in its in its data and it can uh, figure out yeah how to how to respond to all of those. Yeah, ex- you're exactly right. You described it perfectly. So this is called data set aggregation or DAGGER for short. It was developed at Carnegie Mellon by Stefan Ross, who's now at Waymo, and his advisor, Drew Bagnell. And yeah, the idea is that you stochastically trade off control of the car. And there's this funny thing where as the car becomes a better and better imitator of the way that you drive, you're stochastically in control of the car for less and less of the time. But you pass through this intermediate period where you're not sure if you're driving or not <laughs> because it's really good at driving so the good. way you would drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. There's, there's an even simpler, uh, it's almost embarrassing to describe method of uh, solving this problem, at least with cars. I don't know whether it would generalize where you put a camera on the front of the car, a camera facing a bit to the left, a camera facing a bit to the right. And then so the, the camera on the front is given the normal instruction. The camera that faces left, basically, it says, whenever you see this, turn right. The camera on the right, it says, whenever you see this image, turn left. And then you've solved the problem. Exactly. Uh, I'm not sure whether that would generalize to all kinds of problems in life, though, because you can't just uh, angle the camera differently. Right. Not all environments have such obvious, you know, data feeds of what things would look like if you were screwing up. Right. So the car pointed slightly off to the side is a, is a lovely example. And people have done this in other environments. There's a paper where they had a hiker... Um, it was a Swiss group. They had a hiker, you know, hiking this trail in the Alps. And he had a GoPro strapped to the front of his head and then two GoPros next to it at either angle. And same thing that you're describing. And they were able to get a quadcopter to sort of imitate his uh, his hiking through this trail. Yeah. So another kind of failure mode of imitation is over-imitation. Yeah, can, can you talk about, uh, talk about that? Yeah, so over-imitation is interesting. This comes out in the cognitive science literature. So, you know, one thing to point out is just we have a lot of evidence from evolution that imitation learning is a big part of the kind of human alignment strategy, so to speak. We've known since the 1970s that babies are capable of imitating adult facial expressions within something like 45 minutes of being born, which is amazing because they've never seen themselves in a mirror yet. And so they don't even know what they look like. They're, they're doing this cross-modal matching of how their face feels to how your face looks. So there's a lot of evidence that this is just utterly hardwired. But 
children have this funny thing that's been known as over imitation. So there's a study where it used these acrylic boxes, these plastic boxes that had two different latches on them. And you would see the demonstrator kind of opening one latch and then they open the other latch and then they get some food or something. Now there's two conditions. There's one where the box is kind of opaque black. And then there's another where the box is clear. And when the box is clear, you can see for yourself that the first latch has no causal effect whatsoever. It's not connected to anything. It doesn't touch any other thing. It's just sitting there off to the side. Now, what happens when you do this experiment with chimpanzees is the chimpanzee in the clear box case is like smart enough to know that the first thing you do has no effect. And so they only do the second part and get the food. But human children, circa age three, will imitate both parts of your behavior, even when they can see for themselves that the first part had no effect. Uh, and so this is called over-imitation. Now, there are many questions here. You could say, well, maybe the kid just can't tell that the first part is silly. If you ask the kid, which part is silly and which part is like the real part, they can tell you. If you tell them explicitly, don't reproduce the silly part, they'll still over-imitate, even though they can identify that it has no causal effect. So this was a bit of a riddle. People thought, well, maybe it's just one of these cases where human development is slower than primate development. Hmm. But not so. <laughs> yeah, not, not quite. So they swapped out the three-year-olds for five-year-olds. And the five-year-olds were even worse. So this is a very big mystery. And to make a long story short, it turns out that what seems on the surface like the human kids being dumber than the chimpanzees, they're actually operating at like one theory of mind level beyond the chimpanzee. So the chimpanzee sees this clear box that says, the demonstrator is doing something pointless and stupid. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to do the, the important part. The human has theory of mind. And so they realize that the demonstrator is showing them this thing on purpose. They know that the demonstrator knows that they can see that the action is pointless. And so why would the demonstrator be demonstrating a pointless action unless there was some deeper reason behind it? And so that is, in fact, what's going on with the kids. So this has revealed that even in what seems like mere mimicry, there is actually this pretty complicated theory of mind happening behind the scenes. Yeah. I mean, one way they help to figure this out is that the if the person did an unnecessary action for another identifiable reason, like say they were injured perhaps, and then they had to like work, a, work around an injury in order to do it, and that required them to do some extra action that the child doesn't have to, then the child won't copy that because then they have an alternative explanation for why they've done this thing. Exactly. But if there is an alternative explanation, then they just copy it, even if they can't explain why it's useful. Yeah, this reminded me of this uh, book, The Secret of Our Success by Joseph Heinrich. Yeah, it explains cultural evolution in, in human history, going back to our hunter-gatherer ancestors, and ends up justifying or um, doing apologetics for people just copying, even if they can't understand what's going on. Because although naive copying and not questioning tradition can really lead you astray and cause you to do stupid and unnecessary things, there's just so many examples in anthropology among people who have studied cultural evolution, where you do much better just to imitate, even if you think the thing is stupid, than to think for yourself. Because the reason why there's some extra step is, is just completely not obvious to you. But if you drop it, then like you'll die five years later because you didn't cook the food the right way and you didn't realize it at the time. So it's kind of, yeah, it, it's something that looks very stupid, but potentially can be uh, more intelligent than the alternative. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I think, you know, it points to the fact that human priors are pretty well tuned, right? They fail in this particular case 
only because it's a laboratory study and the demonstrator is deliberately doing something pointless, essentially to trick them. Yeah, it's an, it's an out-of-sample experience because this isn't typical life. Exactly. So it seems like tradition is obviously far more valuable in a world that's more stable. So our ancestors mm-hmm. learned to follow tradition because the world was largely the same one generation to the next. Things weren't changing very much. So if something was a tradition, it was probably probably useful. That's why it existed. But like in the modern world, things are changing so quickly that tradition is more often just an artifact of some something that was previously useful or something that seems completely random now. And, and we can usefully dispense with it. But if we went back to a more stable world, then we would want to have this tendency to just mimic our elders and to learn from them, even if we can't explain their actions, which is kind of an interesting phenomenon. I think that's a great point. And I mean, I think that highlights a connection between some of these ideas and the sort of fairness bias literature in machine learning, where, you know, by default, you can think of supervised learning as imitating, you know, imitating whatever process created the training data. And if you're at a company that is trying to hire engineers that are more diverse than the engineers that you hired in the 1990s, then a resume screening tool trained on the 1990s data is going to kind of by default reproduce those things. And so, yeah, to your point, you know, imitation is less viable in a world that's changing and it's also less viable in a world that you you want to change. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So what was the main design change going from AlphaGo to AlphaGo Zero? These are, I guess, two different AIs developed by by DeepMind to try to play games like Go and, and chess and I guess potentially computer games as well. But there was a yeah, there was an evolution that allowed AlphaGo Zero to be to be far better at this. Yeah. So this is very interesting. So there are kind of two different neural networks within both AlphaGo and AlphaGo Zero. One is the policy network and one is the value network. And so the value network says for any given position on the board, how likely do I think I am to win? The policy network says for every given position on the board, which moves suggest themselves to me as being promising. So again, you can think of this as sort of the spidey sense and muscle memory, you know, roughly speaking. For the original AlphaGo, the policy network was trained by supervised learning. So this sort of implicit imitation of human master games. So they had a giant database of something like 50 million different Go positions that had been played by human players above a certain skill. And they just said, here's the position on the board. What move do you think the human played? And they trained the neural network to maximize its probability of picking the right answer. And this became the policy network for AlphaGo. So you had this funny chimera where AlphaGo, the original AlphaGo, figured out its value network essentially for itself, but its policy network, which was kind of surfacing which moves to explore or consider, was this fundamentally imitative process that was trained on this database of human games. And fast forward to AlphaGo Zero, which essentially learned the entire the entire kit and caboodle from scratch. Not only did that kind of allow it to you know, transcend perceived wisdom and find things that, you know, human players didn't, didn't think to do. It worked in a very, very specific way through a process that is sometimes known as iterated distillation and amplification. So the basic idea is you have this policy network that suggests what moves just from a kind of a first impression, which moves seem, seem good, seem interesting. And it uses that initial impression to explore those moves in a kind of more deliberate, you know, Monte Carlo tree search. Okay, if I play this, then they play that, then I go here, they go there, then what happens? 
at the end of this giant tree search of exploring tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of positions, it backs up all of that information and makes an ultimate decision about what move it will play. So there's this very kind of surreal hall of mirrors thing, which is that rather than training the policy network on a database of human games, the policy network was trained based on the decisions that AlphaGo Zero itself made as a result of doing this tree search. So it was essentially trying to predict the results of its own deliberative reasoning. But then as its predictions improved, its ability to search more effectively would improve and the program would get even stronger. So you get this kind of feedback loop. Yeah, it's going back and forth between having an intuition about positions and what moves look plausible and then analyzing those that look most plausible and getting even better at figuring out among even those that look good, which ones are which ones are truly best. And then back and forth and back and forth, I guess, <laughs> for millions and millions and millions of games. And then you really have a, a superhuman AI at, at, at chess or go. Yeah. And, I, you know, I find it, yeah, philosophically kind of wonderful that it trains by attempting to imitate itself in effect. Mm. Yeah, I guess what's, it's kind of imitating it at low cost. It's trying to do it like, you know, what if I only can look at this for a few seconds? Like, can I guess what I'm going to do after I've thought about it for longer? Exactly. It's quite cool. Okay, the next subsection is about inference. So I guess, yeah, one way that you might think that we can get AIs to do what we want in a more sophisticated way than just imitating exactly what we're doing is trying to teach them to figure out, to infer what our intentions are and our goals are. And then they can kind of imitate us in a more sophisticated way, not just copying our actions, but kind of copying our intentions and maybe figuring out even better ways of acting to achieve our intentions. Yeah, can you, can you talk about that? Yeah, so again, this is another area that has these very deep connections to cognitive science and what we know about infants. So for example, we, we began to learn as recently as the 2000s that if you attempt to do a physical action, you know, you're reaching for a clothespin, but it's out of reach, or you're trying to move through a doorway, but it's too narrow, or you're trying to put something away, but you don't have a free hand to open the cabinet or whatever. Children as young as, I want to say, 18 months can figure out what you're trying to do based on your behavior and will spontaneously walk over and help you. They'll pick the item up off the floor and hand it to you. They'll open the cabinet door for you. And I think this is very remarkable because this capacity develops multiple years before theory of mind. So a child can't even understand that you're sensory perceiving something that's different to what it's perceiving. It doesn't mm. know that you believe things that are different to what it believes, but it can <laughs> still figure out that you want something and it can try to help you. So I think that's very, very remarkable. It's a very deeply rooted capacity. And so this is another one of these areas where we're trying to do something like that to get human normativity into machines. And so this is broadly known as inverse reinforcement learning. So the reason it's inverse is that reinforcement learning is about given some reward, some scheme for assigning points in an environment, how do you develop a behavior to maximize those points? Inverse reinforcement learning goes the other way. And it says, given some behavior that you're observing, which is presumably maximizing some points, what are the points that it's maximizing? Yeah, interesting. So... Are these learning systems good at figuring out what is being what is being maximized? It sort of varies based on the environment. There are certainly cases, if you think about driving, for example, there was a very early study that Peter Abiel and Andrew Eng did at Stanford in a kind of very simplified driving simulator 
the basic idea is that learning by imitation could be quite difficult in an environment where there are a lot of other cars on the road. You need to pass cars. You need to merge safely. Da, 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 da. There are a huge number of scenarios to consider and to sort of imitate from. And that might actually be kind of impractical to hope that you could get all of that data. On the other hand, the actual reward function, so to speak, of a driver is pretty simple. You know, paramount is don't crash, don't hit stuff, stay far away from other things. Number two, you know, go forward, go the speed limit, stay to the right unless you're passing, you know, that kind of thing. It's a lot more concise and parsimonious to express the goal of the driver than it is to map the inputs to outputs, you know, at that level. And so some early experiments, this goes back to kind of the mid-aughts, seem to suggest that this was promising. By the late aughts, we were doing this with actual physical systems. So famously, the Stanford helicopter could do these elaborate helicopter stunts in real, in real life just by watching a human radio-controlled helicopter pilot attempting stunts and then through inverse reinforcement learning, figuring out, oh, you're trying to do this and that. And so even if you couldn't pull off the trick, it would still figure out what you were trying to do, and it could execute the trick better than you yourself could. So this was extremely encouraging. Yeah. So I guess it can learn to do things that we can't do, or it can learn, interestingly, from our intent to do things that we're not doing. And I guess it also sounded like it, in some scenarios, maybe many scenarios, it's actually a fast way for it to learn to do things is rather than learn the behavior, to imitate the behavior, to like figure to back out what the goal must have been, because that might be more parsimonious. It's, it's, exactly a, right. it's a simpler thing to explain what you're trying to do than to explain all of the ways that you might try to do it. That's right. Yeah. I mean, imagine soccer, for example, um, <laughs> saying, you know, we just want to put the ball through the net versus uh, we need to coordinate and pass and, you know, well, or, I mean, defenders or whatever. If you're doing it with visual input, I guess you have to like think about every possible visual configuration or like every, every way that you could abstract away from the position and then figure out what you would do in that situation is like vastly, vastly more complex than just saying stick the ball in the goal. <laughs> right, right. And yeah. so in many cases, right, we just want to let the system do that optimization itself. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, there are times, of course, when imitation can put an agent on the right track and that, that's helpful. But yeah, and it, as you say, often our goals are simpler than our actions. Yeah. So I guess when you're using inverse reinforcement learning, you also have to then have the normal reinforcement learning. So you do the inverse thing to figure it back out the goal. And then I guess you do it the other way and then you do it back and then so on, like in a kind of cycle, right? It's not really a cycle per se, but it is a two-stage thing. So first figure out the goal, then figure out the behavior that gets the goal. Got Okay, yeah. So I guess Jan Leiker and Dario Amade and Paul Cristiano, all people who've been guests on the show, I did a collaboration back in 2017 on inverse reinforcement learning, and I've got a paper that we'll link to. Do you know how excited is the field about inverse reinforcement learning as a way of aligning AI with kind of complex, complex values today? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really one of the major thrusts of AI safety research. So Stuart Russell's group at the Center for Human Compatible AI, where I'm myself an affiliate, that is one of the stable techniques that his group is interested in. Jan Leica, as you mentioned, who has now just recently moved from DeepMind to OpenAI, reward modeling is kind of the cornerstone of his philosophy about how we're going to get kind of general intelligence systems aligned. So what we're seeing is this move from simpler domains like, okay, we want to do, you know, a loop the loop in a helicopter so we can represent the reward in the terms of 
you know, are you upside down? Are you going up or down? Are you not crashing? Whatever. That's pretty simple. You know, you can model the helicopter using, you know, a couple dozen parameters like orientation, velocity, and so forth. And then the hard part is how do you actually optimize the controls to pull it off? But that's, you know, that's what classic RL does. So we just let it work. It's a lot harder to think about a modern setting like, you know, a big language model. And what a human wants is the language model to summarize a text. So how do you parameterize what's a summary? You know, how, how many, uh, <laughs> how, do you, how do you exactly represent that numerically? So this has been kind of the, the current frontier. But yeah, as you, as you mentioned, I, I think it's worth highlighting the Stepping Stone paper from 2017, because I really do see that as kind of a key link between some of this classic work with helicopter and so forth and the modern kind of alignment work. So, you know, this 2017 paper, the basic idea here was how do you do something like inverse reinforcement learning in a setting where you can't directly provide demonstrations because you don't know how to do the action yourself. You may not even know how to do it on a controller in a virtual environment. And you don't know how to specify it in terms of some hand-coded reward function. But you would know it if you saw it. Um, And so the example, kind of the famous example that they used was this virtual robot backflipping in a virtual environment. It's hard for a human to backflip. Some mo- Most of us can't. I certainly can't. It would be hard to control all of the different joints of the robot, you know, in a controller to make it do the thing, and most people wouldn't know how to do that. It's hard to describe a backflip numerically in terms of the torque and the momentum and all these things. But if you saw one, you would know it instantly. And so the idea here was that there would be kind of a... Um, This goes back to this question of iteration and feedback. So the idea was the program would initially have this blank slate of, I have no idea what the human wants me to do, so I'm just going to wriggle around randomly. And we'll show the user these two video clips and say, which one looks like the kind of wriggling that you want? Um, And (laughs) it may be difficult, but if you can sort of identify, well, this wriggling is at least going somewhat clockwise. So that's infinitesimally closer to a backflip, I guess. Then it will say, okay, well, I know that you preferred, you know, X to Y. So let me make some inferences about what I think the reward that you have in mind might be. And then I'll try to optimize that. And then I'll show you two new video clips. If you do this process 900 times, which sounds like a lot, it takes about an hour, but 900 bits of information is not very much. By the end of that hour, the program is doing these beautiful gymnastic backflips and sticking the landing. So I I see that as a very, very encouraging kind of waypoint in this project of alignment that here's a case where there's something that we want. In this case, it's kind of an aesthetic desire, an aesthetic preference. We can't demonstrate it. We can't operationalize it, but we can still impart that into the machine through this process of kind of comparing these different, you know, video A, video B. Yeah. It would be ideal if we could just generalize this method and teach, you know, a general AI, you know, what is helpfulness? What is like helping someone get what they want? That would be that would be optimal cuz then it would that that would be a very general kind of virtue or like concept that it would understand and then be able to apply more broadly. But I guess I'm guessing that helpfulness is a much more complicated concept than a backflip. And so uh, it like just may not be possible to teach using this method, perhaps, or it would just require an impossibly large amount of data, too many examples and too many different situations to to produce a behavior or a virtue like that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, 
There is both this really optimistic feeling that I get from that paper, but I'm not kidding myself about the practical aspects of actually trying to scale that up and saying like, here are two simulated, you know, front pages of the New York Times from the year 2030, <laughs> which one portrays a happier world? You know, like, um, it's yeah. not, it's not so simple. So there's yeah. a, a oh, lot to be done. I, I don't know. I mean, it, I guess you could imagine that might be one piece of a uh, piece of a broader puzzle would be, uh, yeah, trying to predict what outcomes do people like at a broad social level, but I don't know. Yeah, it also gives me the willies to imagine <laughs> trying to teach something to deeply understand what how we want society to look uh, using that method. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing is we're starting to see some of these techniques actually make their way out of, you know, the whiteboards of places like OpenAI and Berkeley and into actual tech companies. So I know, for example, a lot of the Berkeley PhD students have been collaborating, doing kind of summer internships at places like Twitter, for example, and kind of what what services are they are they using it for to to train an AI to do what kind of thing? So, for example, if you're Twitter, you have some notification delivery system, and you can track the way that people engage. You know, do they tap the notification when they do? How long do they look at the tweet? Do they immediately close the app? Do they like it, retweet it? Do they hit the button that says "Don't show me anything like this"? I don't like that. So you can build this kind of causal model of the different sorts of flow charts of interactions that the user can have. It's very hard to specify in an operational way, this is what healthy behavior looks like. It's this exact ratio of comments to reshares to likes to, you know, whatever. So you can use something in this kind of IRL family to just say, okay, we know that when a user uninstalls Twitter, that's bad. We know that when they hit the button that says, I didn't want to see this don't show me stuff like that. That's bad. But the the concrete feedback that we have is pretty sparse. And so what we want to do is actually back away from that. What are the patterns of user engagement that appear to be kind of leading indicators of the more sparse, but more, you know, sort of ground truth feedback. And then we have some complicated IRL system that tells us like, okay, this is the type of pattern of behavior that seems good versus seems bad. You can directly optimize notification delivery for that operational definition without necessarily ever really popping the hood and knowing how you've operationalized it. This leads on very naturally to my next question, which is you describe this scenario where an inverse reinforcement learning system would kind of learn potentially that an alcoholic, that one of their goals is to drink lots of alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and, and I think this kind of actually does happen, say, with advertising algorithms. They'll figure out this person buys a lot of alcohol and then they'll advertise them alcohol constantly wherever they go on the internet, on Facebook, on Twitter, on other websites. And I guess it just speaks to the kind of complexity of human values or ways that our behavior might not really match our deeper values or how our values can be intention. And I guess you, you suggest that we might want to have rules that allow people to inspect the imputed values that some system has figured out that we hold and then say, no, actually, this is a misunderstanding. I actually don't want to drink alcohol. I'm trying to drink less because we are not, in fact, able to always operationalize our values to the maximum degree in real life. And so you could learn the wrong lesson. Yeah, I think this is extremely important. We are, you know, very much living through an era of recommendation algorithms that whether they explicitly use something like IRL or not, have have that flavor of I've seen the sorts of things that you engage with and here's what I think you want. So here's, you know, I'm going to give you what you seem to want. And yeah, the alcohol example is not hypothetical. You know, I know, I know someone in my life who has an alcohol addiction and they have talked to me about, oh my God, you know, Instagram or whatever app has figured out 
that when this stuff is on the screen, I stare at it. And this is this is incidentally something I think people don't appreciate. People know that their clicks are being tracked by these apps, but just the number of milliseconds that an image is on the screen is being recorded. So if you just like slightly linger as you scroll through your feed, that's it knows it knows. Um, so yeah, it really is this panopticon thing, and I think there's a real problem here, which is that you know we. We know that humans, to, to borrow Daniel Kahneman's phrase, you know, we have system one and system two. We think fast and slow. And yeah, again, to use like a sort of an addiction analogy, someone may not be able to avoid having a drink if there's a drink in their fridge, but they can pour out all the alcohol in their house and not give themselves the temptation. And so how do we think about these kind of second order desires or the ways in which people not only reflexively react to a scenario, but they actually kind of sculpt the types of scenarios that they encounter. I think we don't really have good formal models for that yet. And for me, there's a little bit of a dangerous period where we can optimize really well for this impoverished model of what people want. Yeah, for our base instincts. Exactly. Okay, the final section of the book is kind of a different approach that we could use to try to get AIs to uh, not do dangerous things, which is trying to get them to kind of to be uncertain about what actions would be good, to kind of be nervous before they before they have impacts on the world. And the hope is that that would cause them to become courageable is the, uh, I guess, the, the, the jargon for this. But it kind of means being willing to be turned off or being willing to be corrected because they've made a mistake. So it's like correctable, I guess. So yeah, why are the existing traditional systems maybe overconfident and, and resistant to correction or being turned off? Yeah, by definition, you know, a normal agent that has some reward function, there's kind of no articulation that that reward function might be wrong. And so anything that gets between it and getting those points is just an obstacle to be avoided. So there's there's no difference between the hand of the actual designer of the system coming in and saying, no, 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 don't grab that, don't do this. I'm going to turn you off, whatever it might be. That's just part of the environment that's getting between it and what it wants. And so, yeah, people like Stuart Russell, for example, and others have been thinking about how can we incorporate some notion of uncertainty or doubt or the idea that, you know, the the agent thinks it knows what it's supposed to do, but it may be wrong. And so that turns out to, I think, be one of the key pieces of this puzzle is kind of leaving a little bit of the reward function sort of ajar, so to speak, such that if you come in and say like, whoa, 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 don't do that, it is receptive to that feedback or sort of open to modifying its notion of what it's supposed to be doing. Yeah, you have this uh, quite nice, memorable explanation of, so so traditional, I guess, an ML system or a, or a neural network that's, say, designed to recognize images and say, you know, hot dog, not hot dog. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, a system like that has no ability to tell. So it, it'll say like 90% probable that this is a hot dog, but it doesn't have a way of giving a deeper uncertainty saying like this, this one was more confusing and like weird and like maybe the 90% is wrong. They don't have a, a system for like understanding uncertainty in the way that, that humans do. But there's this beautiful way that you can get them to tell you in effect how uncertain they are, which is that you take this neural net and like chop off 10% of it or chop off 20% of it and then see if that changes the answer or we'll see whether, whether it changes the, the assessed probability that an image is one thing or another. And then if it doesn't matter like which 10% you take away, it just spits out the same answer all the time. Then you have a really robust system and the answer is you can be more confident that the answer is right. But if just tinkering with it a little bit, like chopping out some, some pieces here and there, 
causes the answer to just like flip around crazily, then that's a sign that in, in fact, uh, that the, the process is really uncertain and unstable. That's exactly right. Yeah. So this idea um, is called dropout uncertainty, and it goes to uh, the researchers Yaron Gall at Oxford and Zubin Garmani at Cambridge. And yeah, this was a really beautiful idea because the method that you're describing of just sort of deactivating part of the network, this had been for many years, going back to I think 2014, if not earlier, actually, no, earlier than that, was part of the deep learning toolkit, a, a way to kind of get robust training. You would just turn some of the network off with every training example. And so you would kind of create this robustness in the network because it would have to work even if certain parts of it weren't weren't acting. And it turns out that if you leave this process running when the system is actually deployed, then you get this kind of stochasticity exactly as you're describing, and you can use that to measure uncertainty. And I think about that in the context of like, there was the Uber self-driving car that killed the pedestrian in 2018. And I read the National Transportation Safety Board report on that accident. And well, there were many, many things going on there, but one of them was that the woman was walking a bicycle across the street. And the object recognition system had these different categories. One category was cyclist. One category was pedestrian. And it kept essentially flickering between these two categories. It was like, okay, I see the bike frame and the tires, but no, she's not riding it. She's walking on the ground, so maybe it's a pedestrian. And the category label was flipping back and forth tens of times per second. And this is part of what contributed to the crash because it kept essentially recomputing her probable trajectory from scratch every time it would change the category. And I think, as you're saying, most people in that situation, the mere fact that they weren't certain or the mere fact that their guess kept changing, that is already very powerful evidence that you should like tap the brakes. Huge red flag. Huge red flag. Yeah. And so that's the kind of thing, you know, I think it's increasingly being recognized that this is an intrinsic part of building safe AI systems. Yeah, I, I remember that case. I think my first reaction was, it's unfortunate that people are getting so head up about this because I, I expect that AI-driven cars are going to be safer in the long term. And you can imagine this thing where people are so much more appalled by a traffic accident that's caused by an AI gone gone astray than just a, than one that's caused by humans. And so people might be giving it too much attention relative to, to its importance just because it's kind of a novel way for someone to die on the road relative to like many, many people who die in the normal way all the time on the road. Then I remember reading about like how this happened and, and how basic the error was in this system. And I was like, this feels like amateur hour. I can't believe these cars are on the road. How are they allowed, How are they licensed to drive? Because I, they, they were so much less sophisticated than I had guessed that they would have to be in order to be able to get out on the street and, and, and function at all. Yeah, there were so many different intersecting issues. And one of them was, I mean, many things, including like the actual process at Uber, where they used to have two safety people in every car. They cut it down to one. That one person was apparently distracted. The training data didn't have, as far as I understand, examples of jaywalking in it. So all of the pedestrians in the training data were crossing at intersections, crossing at crosswalks. And so the system just was unprepared to encounter a person outside of that context. Yeah. I mean, I would have thought, for example, that these cars would have had a scanner on their roof that's, that would warn it that it, there's a thing on the middle of the road and that it's about to hit and that it should slow down so it doesn't hit the thing that's about to run into. But uh, I'll link to this ARS Technica article that explains why they don't have this system. Apparently, it leads to like unstable behavior. 
where they can like suddenly start and stop because they'll be very concerned about running into things. So when they're at speed, it's it's incredible, but they don't have a system that's telling them to stop running into things, which is why, as I understand, this car just plowed into this person at full speed. It had taken no aversive action. But yeah, I, I mean, it shows the complexity of the problem, I guess, from one perspective, or maybe that things weren't advanced as, as advanced as we might have hoped. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it's a little bit of all of that. You know, and there's this further irony too, which is that modern cars, I mean, it's almost impossible to buy a car in 2020, 2021, whatever, without it having some rudimentary autopilot system running, you know, to do automatic braking and so forth. And Uber was actually overriding that system because it was interacting with their driving thing. So yeah, they had kind of essentially removed one layer of of defense, so to speak. I mean, this is one way which I think the conversation around fairness, bias, representation in machine learning intersects with these kind of longer-term technical AI safety concerns. Because we're sort of familiar with the idea of something is underrepresented in a data set. We've seen these kind of catastrophic examples of, you know, African-Americans being labeled as a gorilla by a, you know, a commercial photo captioning system or, you know, image recognition not working on women of color in particular. But the same thing was happening here where the training data just didn't reflect the actual kind of demographics, so to speak, of the world. That jaywalkers exist in real life, but... People walk bikes. People walk bikes, exactly. And so, and in this case, the fact that the fact that the bike walker isn't in the data set literally kills them. Yes, I mean, I think this is part of the danger that people worry about when we worry about AI safety is that we have this model that's kind of misspecified in some way. You know, it creates this ontology that you know there are a thousand categories of thing, and every thing is in exactly one of those categories. Uh, they're you know both exhaustive and mutually exclusive, and that's all the things that can ever exist. And that's just not true. And so there's something really kind of haunting, I think, about a model that is powerful enough to essentially enforce the limits of its own understanding. It has this impoverished view of the world, but then it forces the world to conform to that rather than itself adapting. I think that's that's the kind of thing, right, that should keep us up at night, both in the self-driving car context, but more generally. And yeah, in more advanced cases as well. Okay, so that was about developing uncertainty about categorizations and uncertainty about situations. So perhaps a system can can recognize when it is in an unfamiliar situation in which it should act more cautiously. But I guess there's also kind of uncertainty about value, uncertainty about what you care about and about whether outcomes are, are, are good or bad. Yeah, what are some ways that people have gone about trying to add that kind of uncertainty to machine decision making to make them behave more more cautiously? Yeah, one of my favorite examples here, there's this idea that came out of Berkeley, Dylan Hadfield Minnell and others called inverse reward design. And the basic idea here is even in a situation where you explicitly give the system a reward function that says, you know, doing this is worth 100 points, doing this is worth negative five points, you know, have at it. Even in that case, the system should still take that reward function as mere evidence about what you really want rather than as the, you know, word from on high, you know, chiseled into stone tablets of what it should really do. So there should be some kind of inferential process of saying, okay, this is the set of scenarios that the designer of the system had in mind when they created this reward function. But here's a set of scenarios that are outside of that distribution in which this reward function might do some weird stuff. 
or there might be some kind of implicit ambiguity that wasn't important to resolve in this one set of environments, but now we really need to get clear on what what exactly do you want me to do? So I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that end up getting kind of baked into models of, of the future that even when presented with an explicit kind of operational objective, will still say to you, now, wait a minute, <laughs> um, just to be clear, here's the situation. I'm not sure what to do. You know, let, let's go back to the drawing board for a second. Yeah. So one benefit that this kind of setup has where a system is trying to figure out what you value, but it's always a bit unsure about whether it's figured it out correctly or not, is that if you go to turn it off, then it's going to infer from that, that it's made a mistake and that it say hasn't correctly figured out what you value. And it will then guess that you're turning it off because it's mistaken and it will be glad about it. It'll be glad to be turned off because it has an explanation for why that is actually good for its values, which is that it is mistaken, which is in a sense very simple and obvious, but it's something that isn't built into our previous designs or some other designs. That's right. And um, you know this can get surprisingly delicate because the system has to model your, as it were, irrationality. So there may be cases where the system overrides you for your own good and that's the right thing to do. So one example would be you accidentally bump the autopilot disengage button with your elbow when you're reaching to get a drink out of the cup holder. It's probably good that the car has some model of like, okay, you're not holding the steering wheel. So I'm pretty sure that this is not really what you really want me to do. I think that that's interesting because a lot of the pre-existing horror stories that we have about AGI, you know, have that Kubrick aspect of open the pod bay doors, how I'm sorry, I can't do that, that sort of disobedience. But in this case, you know, you bump the autopilot disengage and not disengaging probably is correct. So there's there's a bit of a tightrope act to be done in terms of figuring out when when the, you know, AI model of your preferences diverges from your behavior, how to adjudicate that. It's not totally yeah. simple. Yeah, you say that you were at first like incredibly excited by this idea because like, oh, wow, this could potentially be a solution to so many of the problems that we've been talking about. But then realizing that it can fail catastrophically in both directions so easily, both if it's like overconfident that it understands what you want. And then I guess it's just like goes away and obeys your instructions literally and does all of the normal things that we're familiar with. Or alternatively, if it's not willing to, to override you uh, because it, when, when it actually does know better. As you say, it's a tightrope. It is. And this is an area where I think AI safety is increasingly borrowing from cognitive science that we need sort of formal models of human foibles, so to speak, you know, human irrationality. If you model the human as always doing exactly what they want, then you might end up observing what appears to be a contradiction and concluding that the human's preferences like are gibberish. (laughs) Um, And you don't want to do that. But the, the formal models that we have for the relationship between human behavior and their preferences are pretty rudimentary and there's a lot of room there for basically you know insert all of cognitive science here um, in terms of what what is the mapping between what people want and how they behave yeah i feel i feel sorry for the ai systems because uh, we, we have such an easier time understanding humans because we are <laughs> it's true <laughs> um, yeah a, a different way of trying to build in caution and uncertainty is just trying to directly give these systems a preference for not changing the world. So they want to kind of do the minimum thing that will achieve their goal with as, as few kind of side effects, so to speak, as possible. But it, I guess it turns out that people who study this have found that it's remarkably hard to make the notion of like avoid having impacts on the world philosophically concrete and programmable. Yeah, could, could you describe some of the, 
of the ways that people have tried to operationalize that and how it hasn't always gone gone super smoothly? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uncertainty, I think, ties very intuitively to this notion of impact that, you know, the, the higher the impact of the action you're about to take, the more certain you ought to be before taking it. I think that's an intuition that, you know, kind of bears out and that you see this idea in medical ethics, the idea of, you know, not, not taking an irreversible action when you're uncertain. You see it in legal ethics, the idea of kind of preliminary injunctive actions, you know, stopping an irreparable harm, things like that. And so there's been a lot of interest in computer science for the same reason. You know, how do we formalize the impact that an action is going to have? And it's very difficult. There are some jokes within the AI safety community about, you know, you ask a AI system to cure cancer, which it does, but then it kills the patient anyway, so that the quote unquote impact of, you know, making the cure oh. is minimized <laughs> uh, because, yeah. you know, the, the patient has to die in, in the counterfactual, just the same way that they did in, in real life. So that's the joke, but it, it gets to how tricky some of these intuitions really are. Yeah. So we have a like intuitive sense for what is the important stuff that you were trying to change and what are the and what and categorizing side effects, but then giving that intuition to these systems is 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 really hard. You talk about one one just brute force approach that's been suggested, I think, uh, by by Stuart Armstrong at the Future of Humanity Institute, if yep. I recall correctly, is to kind of list just like millions of things about the world, <laughs> different things that you can measure, and then say. Like if you haven't been explicitly asked to change any of these things, please don't change them or have an aversion to, to changing them. That, that's, that's kind of negatively rewarded, changing any of these other things. And then I guess there's people who've been trying to develop these systems that kind of learn caution perhaps because there is some intermediate reward for ensuring that they can always get back to, the, to all of the situations that they were previously able to access. So anything they do that creates irreversibility where they can't reverse their step is negatively punished in the, yeah, right away. Yeah, that's right. So you see this, you know, DeepMind, uh, Vika Krakovna and Jan Leica and, and their collaborators had built these kind of, they're called AI safety grid worlds. They're sort of these toy environments in which we can test out these different models of impact penalties and sort of different formalisms of, of AI caution, so to speak. And one of them is this Sokoban warehouse where it's like one of these traditional games where you're pushing boxes around in a warehouse, but you can only push them, you can't pull them. And so anytime a box ends up in the corner of the room, you could never move it ever again. And so this is an arena in which, you know, you can apply the appropriate penalty and the agent will only put boxes in these unrecoverable positions if that's necessary to escaping the level, but otherwise it will avoid that. And I think this is another case where the progress in these toy environments is encouraging, but scaling it up to a real world setting is far from obvious. There's one approach that I think is pretty interesting that comes from Alex Turner. And it's this idea that instead of exhaustively enumerating all the things you might care about, you just pick some small number of random reward functions or some small number of randomized goals in the environment. And you just ask the question of, after I take the action I'm considering, would it still be possible to achieve these randomly generated goals? And at least in these grid world environments, that actually turns out to be a really good proxy for the sorts of things that we care about of, you know, not shattering the Ming boss or, you know, not <laughs> running over the cat or whatever it might be. Yeah. All right. We've gotten through a lot of a lot of the book here, uh, describing kind of the, the, the key ideas that or the key concepts and takeaways that people maybe need to have. For this last third of our conversation, 
I think I'd be really interested to kind of hear your personal opinions and guesses and, and impressions on these topics. Uh, maybe even if you can't fully back them up, and even if they weren't uh, solid enough to, to to make it into the book, because I guess you're someone who is who's like semi technical or reasonably technical technical enough to understand these things, but not so embedded in it that you're uh, at the research frontier. But you also have like a much broader knowledge about about the world. But you've spent years interviewing all these people, building up this understanding of how how AI works today, what the problems are, what are the attempts to make it safe, and trying to assess like how how much at risk are we in, in the real world. So it's just good to good to get your potential overall overall impressions as a as a smart generalist who's dedicated so much time to this. So kind of how worried are you now, I guess, about AI alignment, AI safety in the future, I guess, maybe compared to the median AI researcher? It's hard for me to disentangle a kind of psychological, you know, bias towards just being an optimistic person from, you know, an actual evaluation of what's happening. From my perspective, there is a lot of evidence that things are going well in the sense that, as I say, when I when I started researching this book, which was 2016, you know, concrete problems in AI safety had come out. OpenAI had just been founded. Center for Human Compatible AI was on its way to being founded. And so we were seeing kind of the early germination of this field. You know, the first batch of Future of Life Institute research grants had gone out, I think late 2015, early 2016, something like that. And so that was really like the beginning of this process of actually funding and committing to the scientific work. And I think a similar thing has been happening in these sort of present day focused kind of fairness, accountability, transparency community, that that subfield within ML really sort of blew up in 2016. And now there are multiple entire conferences just about that set of issues. You know, we didn't, we didn't talk about that part of the book as much, but I think there's kind of an underappreciated extent to which those issues both inform and are informed by the kind of longer-term AI safety issues. So the field-building part, I think, is in pretty good shape. There's a lot of results. I mean, the backflip one being one example where things that wouldn't a priori have necessarily worked did, in fact, work. You know, the backflip... Could have been a total failure. Exactly. And, you know, that was something that, you know, Paul and Jan talked about doing it. It was like, we had no expectation that this was actually going to succeed. And it did. So I take evidence like that as being encouraging. It's interesting thinking about this in an early 2021 context. There's been a lot of personnel turnover in the AI safety research community. So I think there's a question of how does the commitment to safety research financially sustain itself? Like, is that going to stay a priority of, you know, research grants coming from governments? Is it going to stay a priority of publicly traded companies? That, I think there's a little bit of uncertainty in terms of kind of the asymptotic, like, what's what's the equilibrium of, is this really part of, you know, the priority list financially? Yeah, I guess you're talking about there's been some people who've decided to leave OpenAI and uh, I guess continue their AI safety research separately or founding founding their own projects that are that are that are independent. Uh, I guess I'm looking forward to talking to them and finding out what they're up to uh, once 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 they're ready to to talk about it. But are you suggesting that there's been a lot of progress with people entering the field with it gaining credibility? But you're wondering like, will there be enough funding from these for profits or from governments or or I guess philanthropy to fund all of the necessary research that we need uh, going forward and for it to happen quickly enough? Yeah. I mean, I think the progress is real and my concerns are more hypothetical than they are, you know, actually looking at what happened over the past five years. I think there's there's a certain question of will safety 
continue to be a priority for the actual project of making, you know, ultimately profitable things, products. And I, I hope that's the case. We'll see, you know, so I'm, I'm going to say cautiously optimistic there, but I think that is a question. Yeah, I guess one failure mode would be that we're on the right track and we're making all this progress and it's going great, but it's just too slow because all of the people are diverted off to things that are really profitable in the short run, like making products that you can sell. And so the safety research lags behind because it's not profitable right away. That's like one one, one bad way that things would go. Yeah, just asking like, how worried are you? Maybe we need to decompose it because uh, <laughs> <laughs> there's like multiple different factors that go into worry. One would be, you might think that like the problem is more or less serious or like the outcomes from AI being misaligned could be more like worse or, or not so bad. There's this question of like, are enough people going into it? Is the field that we need to, to solve that problem growing or not? So kind of a, an issue of neglectedness. And then also evaluating how hard is it to solve? So you might have like from your research got the impression that, ah, these the, the technical problems, totally legitimate, but we're also just clearly solving them at a good pace. Or like, wow, some of these things just seem deeply intractable and we don't know how to fix them. And I guess it sounds like it's clear that quite a lot of people are going into it. And maybe it seems like we're making quite a bit of progress, but maybe the third one would be, how bad could the outcomes be if we don't kind of keep up or put enough work into doing all of this? Yeah. At the moment, when I think about the sort of bleeding edge of AI, AGI research, I'm thinking about things like GPT-3, which is kind of behind an API. So there's a certain safety thing there, which is if OpenAI detected someone using it maliciously, they would just cut that person off. And so that closes down a certain set of possible threats, there is a question of, you know, if someone comes along and says, hey, I can design something that achieves GPT-3 level performance on uh, a MacBook Air for, you know, $100 worth of electricity, then it's it's different. So that's definitely one question. I mean, it's been surprising to me when GPT-2 came out, there was a lot of conversation around publication norms. Should OpenAI release the full model, the like one point something billion parameter model, which is now, you know, tiny compared to what they're working with. But there was this real question of, you know, we're going to gradually release it because we're worried that it's going to fall into the wrong hands and so forth. Now, maybe I've been somehow in the dark and missing this, but I haven't seen evidence of like widespread malicious use, which I myself and I think many people were quite worried about. So it's weird not to see that. And then you, of course, ask yourself, well, maybe they're just being really sneaky about it. Mm. And so we don't know, but that's because of how good they are. So you mean malicious use of GPT-2 because that's more public, whereas GPT-3 is behind this API? Well, I'm just saying that when GPT-2 came out, there was this question of, oh, are, is this going to be really dangerous? And then we've had more time since that. And there hasn't been, to my knowledge, any super spooky cautionary tales of that, which I expected there would be by now. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know how many people actually have GPT-2 running on the computers or can access it and and use it. It could just be that it isn't very widely distributed yet. I mean, with GPT-3, there's like multiple different things that we might learn from it. One thing that I think some people have been worried about is that the fact that GPT-3 can say things that seem so intelligent and uncannily human, maybe that shows that intelligence is simpler than we thought and that mimicking what humans are capable of doing isn't as hard as we thought. And all you just need is lots of neurons, just like a really big model. And even without amazing algorithms or even without like amazing breakthroughs in the underlying theory of how AI develops, that's going to be able to replicate what we can do. 
And that would be like both very cool and also very scary because then you're like, well, all we just need to do is give it more compute, give it more data, and then potentially sooner than we thought, we could have something that is uh, generally intelligent. Another one might be, well, how is GPT-3 specifically going to be put to use and what risks does does that pose? But I'm perhaps more worried about the former lesson. And, and there I just don't know how to analyze that question of like, have we learned something important about intelligence and, and what humans are doing? Yeah, I think we have, in my opinion. It's funny, if you track the a lot of the naysaying that existed circa 2017, 2018 around AGI, a lot of people would point to things like pronoun resolution, Winograd schema, things like that, and be like, well, you know, call me when AI can do that. You know, call me when AI can tell me what the word it means in such and such sentence. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, well, I well, guess it can. <laughs> we're there, so we can know, we call you? <laughs> can we call you now? So I think there's there's things like that. I mean, you know, I, I'm not a neuroscientist, but you know, there's some neuroscientific evidence that the cortex is just a lot of general purpose stuff that you know learns by experience. It's not, you know, anatomically there's not a lot going on in terms of differentiation. So that that gives us a little bit of intuition that something like GBT3, where it's just like a enormous, you know, mostly kind of undifferentiated block of transformer, and we just, you know, gradient descend our way to everything else. There's some reasonable evidence from neuroanatomy that that, that may be largely viable. I think there's a question of how to bridge the divide between something like mu zero on the one hand, which builds this world model that allows it to do kind of hypothetical scenario planning in its head, so to speak, and say like, okay, if I do this, then the world's going to start to look like that, but then I can do such and such thing. That kind of model-based reinforcement learning, combine that with the sort of language model. So I think something like that is going to be the roadmap to AGI as far as I can see from this point. Now, there's a question of, Will something like Mu Zero just magically shake out of a huge transformer? Will it just optimize its way to building this world model and like being able to run that forward in time and predict things? I'm not sure that we really have an answer to that. So I think that's a question. I, I think we're also going to hit the limits, in my view, of the pre-training objective for language models. That these language models are based on this unsupervised objective of essentially filling in the blank in a pre-existing text. And then you can maybe fine-tune it a little bit afterwards. I think that might run its course. I think it will, yes, because you know a lot of what motivates speech is this model-based thing of, I have a model of your understanding in my head, and I want to think about what to say in order to like maximally impart information to you. And then I'm getting feedback from you about how good my model of you is. That sort of thing is being built on the fly. I don't see any really clear way that we get from just like fine-tuning this pre-trained and supervised objective to that. So for me, that's, that's the current kind of $10,000 question is like, how do we create kind of a training regime that actually looks a little bit more like why people talk? Yeah. yeah. We don't merely imagine a text exists and fill it in, but... <laughs> We have like actual underlying concepts that then generate the speech from the underlying ideas. Yeah. One thing you say in kind of the closing pages of the book is that you think um, humanity is kind of in danger of losing control over the course of events. 
but not so much to AI or machine learning specifically, but rather to models of the world in, in a more general sense. And I wasn't, wasn't completely sure what you meant by that. Is, is, it, is it possible to flesh that out? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this kind of springs from some of what we were talking about with the car accident, that there's something dangerous about a model of the world, which is, you know, simplified by necessity, right? So there's this adage in the statistics community by George Box, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So there's something dangerous to my mind about a model that's wrong, but has the ability to become right by kind of terraforming reality to match the simplifications of the model. And so, you know, we touched on this a little bit, the idea of a car that doesn't know that jaywalking is a thing, so it kills jaywalkers, and then jaywalking stops becoming a thing. <laughs> um, so that, that's the kind of thing that I have in mind. But I see that as being not exclusively the province of AI. So I think about economic models, for example. In my view, a lot of what's going wrong in the world right now, if you look at things like climate change, if you look at things like inequality, these are, as far as I'm concerned, alignment problems. We came up with some formal specification of what we wanted our goals to be like as a society, whether it's maximize uh, quarterly profits or GDP per capita or you know whatever it might be. Things which, as in you know any classic alignment problem situation, you know correlate to what we really care about until they don't. And so you know I remember having conversations with Stuart Russell about this back in 2014, and and just saying, yeah, I mean you can sort of think of climate change as this alignment problem that we had, you know these variables that we didn't put into the reward function about like the sea level and you know whatever, and in optimizing for this particular set of variables, you know, the variables that we didn't consider, you know, blew up. So in a way, part of my pessimism about things like AI safety is that I see the world's most pressing macro scale problems as essentially being alignment problems. Well, they're, they're not exactly the same, but they're kind they're analogous in certain kind of core respects. And we haven't managed to solve these other ones. So maybe we won't solve this one either. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think they're maybe more than analogous. You know, it's like the same the same thing that happens in reinforcement learning where you operationalize some definition of what you want. It doesn't perfectly contain everything you care about, but it's pretty good. And then, you know, you optimize it at your peril, basically. So I think I think that's basically where we're at as a civilization. And there's, there's hope in, and this is a little bit uh, dreamy here, but there's hope that something like inverse reinforcement learning could help us get out of that trap to sort of break the tyranny of these KPIs, if you will. If we can just point to, you know, in, in a very kind of backflip way, like here are two hypothetical societies, which one is flourishing better? Um, and then back out of that, what we need to do about the Gini coefficient and GDP and <laughs> all that. Um, yeah. So that's the, that, I think it would be very interesting to see some of the progress that's being made on breaking the tyranny of the explicitly specified objective function to think about some of the actually like the most macro objective functions that we have in the world right now. So that, you know, I'm not sure, but it would be very interesting to imagine a future where we're using something like IRL, you know, even at that level. Yeah. I guess the reason I wanted to say that climate change seems more analogous rather than the same is that 
we know that this is going wrong. We can see that profit maximization is not aligned with interest. And we've known this for ages and we talk about it. And I feel like the reason it's not getting solved isn't lack of technical capacity of lack of realization of the misalignment. It's that it's competition between people where like particular groups benefit from this happening, whereas the majority are harmed, but they're like losing the political fight or they're not able to coordinate. Or you have this like common good issue where it's like every, it would be good if everyone changed it, but some people wouldn't. And I mean, maybe there's an analogous aspect to that common common good problem uh, with, with AI, but it seems like there's a slightly different dynamic potentially with some of these political issues today. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And maybe that is a sobering reminder that those, those sorts of dynamics are going to exist even for something like AGI, that AGI is not just going to be a genie in a bottle that you know, we need to be careful what we ask it to do, but like, it will be something where there are... It's a complicated are, world with lots of actors. Yeah, there's know. multi-stages of stakeholders or each influencing another or their race condition dynamics or et cetera, et cetera. I think that those sorts of things are likely to inform whatever comes next, including AGI, yeah. Yeah, it is really interesting that with... Uh, I think there's been multiple books that have focused on these technical issues, but then they... I don't even get to the next stage. It's like, we first, we've got to solve all of this. And then we've got to figure out how to integrate it into society safely with like all of the messy politics and conflict and violence uh, that we have to deal with. I guess Stuart Russell, I think he kind of, towards the end of his book, he's, he's, he's alluded to these issues, but hasn't really grappled with them fully. And he's like, well, this is going to take a different book. And I'm like, God, this, this, this second step is even worse than the first part. <laughs> even if we can solve the technical stuff, how do we get, uh, and I guess you, you, you explicitly say that if there was another chapter in your book, you would have made it about how do we get different agents with, say, conflicting values or engaging in like games and conflicts and interactions with one another to play nicely and produce a good outcome. And that's kind of a whole problem of its own. Yeah, I think that is a, is a, you know, a next frontier, maybe the next frontier. And, it, you know, it was striking to me when I first started visiting Future of Humanity Institute. I remember seeing, you know, Nick Bostrom was reading this social choice theory textbook. And that that was intriguing because I I hadn't picked up on the kind of direct relevance of that literature to people's thinking in AI. I mean, it makes sense, but I hadn't realized that, we, you know, people were already starting to put those things together. And that was, yeah, 2016, 2017. Yeah, as you say, the, it, my book was going to have a 10th chapter. I eventually just ran out of time and space and the book was already <laughs> like 18 months overdue. So, you know, you, sometimes you just have to ship it. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I'm very interested in these questions of social choice theory. And, you know, it's it's bad enough trying to infer the preferences of a single user. How do you infer the preferences of multiple users that have heterogeneous preferences that want different things? You know, we we've known since Kenneth Arrow that... Uh, there's some senses in which it can't be done. Yeah, exactly. So there's a huge, very rich and sometimes depressingly paradox-filled world there of that sort of multi-user optimization. And I think that that's really a, another frontier. I mean, even even in commercial tech that we have right now, like, you know, I just saw on Twitter, someone was talking about how their, their two-year-old used their Spotify account and now their recommendations are like permanently ruined. And that might be solved in you know, a few years down the line by a system that can identify like, ah, there appears to be this heterogeneous set of preferences that's coming from this new part of preference space. And we'll just build a mixture model where there are these kind of two different things. And so the person's Spotify recommendations wouldn't be like forever ruined. But that's, um, yeah, I think that's an important frontier. And that's really, that work is really just kind of beginning. Yeah. There was this uh, viral tweet recently, which I think went something like, 
I'm not worried about an artificial intelligence that seems incredibly intelligent. I'm worried about an artificial intelligence that deliberately tries to seem really stupid. And this, this idea, I guess, of deception or like AI's learning to deceive us is like one of the maybe wackier, slightly more sci-fi, but like also more alarming possibilities out there. And Nick Bostrom calls this kind of the treacherous turn where you might imagine an artificial intelligence that becomes like much smarter than it's letting on. And then ultimately is able to, it'll only like reveal (laughs) how intelligent it's become at some later time once it's in a position to not be interfered with. But that's a notion that you don't talk about that much in the book. Uh, I guess it gets like a, a handful of short mentions. But yeah, to, to what extent do you worry about deception or misalignment that goes unidentified? Perhaps is like the broader category. Yeah. Where my mind goes with this is that adage that something like never presume malice where incompetence will do, some, that, that, that idea. That's the kind of thing I'm more worried about. And, you know, I've had conversations with you know, people actually doing frontline research like Jeffrey Irving, for example. I remember talking to him about one of the papers he was working on, and I gave him some feedback to the effect of, you know, I I think there's a stop on the way between here and deception, which is basically bullshit. To lie requires this more advanced sort of theory of mind thing of, I know what's true, I know what I think you think, and I want you to think the wrong thing. So I'm going to say what I need to say to get you to think the wrong thing versus the bullshitter who just says whatever, as long as it works. So I'm more worried about the bullshit than about the explicit deception for now. I mean, I think deception is waiting for us, you know, at the end of that road. But in the meantime, you know, OpenAI has talked about cases where they wanted a, they wanted a robot to move an object to a certain position in three-dimensional space. But what the robot did was it moved it to a certain position in two-dimensional space such that like the camera angle Uh, that they were viewing it through looked (laughs) correct. And this is, again, a case where you could think of that as deception, but... It doesn't know that it's tricking someone or hasn't gone through some... Well, I assume it hasn't gone through a thought process where it's figured out how to deceive someone. Exactly. I think we're sort of still in the regime of good old fashioned misalignment. Like it thought that's what you wanted because you didn't give it any examples that kind of tease those two things apart. And I think it is likely that we will have a long slog through that kind of thing before we can worry about deception. Not that we won't need to worry about it, but yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like so long as things progress gradually, slowly, iteratively, such that like you get perhaps warning signs about deception or you get like failed attempts at deception that you can then debug and figure out why that happened and like build in precautions. Then then it seems like maybe we're fine. The case in which this seems more likely is if somehow unexpectedly you get very like rapid increases in the general like capacity and the general reasoning ability of, of AIs that's like maybe for some underlying technical reason you get a breakthrough that then leads to like a sudden spurt of progress that we don't realize is is, is happening or runs out a bit out of control. But that's not the typical situation with technological progress. Most of the time it's bit by bit at a fairly linearish pace rather than being these sudden breakthroughs. Yeah, I mean, right now, you know, there's a there's a lot of really encouraging work that's happening in the transparency space. You know, people like Chris Ola, people like Bean Kim at Google Brain, people like Cynthia Rudin at Duke. There's a lot of very, very encouraging frontiers of that sort of work, both model architectures that are very simple, that are competitive with neural networks, as well as techniques for actually popping the hood of a neural network and figuring out, you know, what its representations mean. That, I think, has been another area where it was not to me a priori obvious that that was going to work. And it has. So that's somewhere where I feel encouraged. 
But in a way, we've already moved on in a lot of respects from the kind of 2D convolutional nets that we're recognizing cats and dogs to these huge transformer attention models. And we don't have the transparency toolkit for that class of models that we do. So this is a place where, you know, the transparency is maybe, you know, five-ish years behind the cutting edge of capability. And so we want to make sure that that... Would really like it to catch up. We, yeah. So I think that's one, one thing. There, there's hope for combating machine deception through, you know, constraining the representations that the system can make or just being able to observe its world model and see what it thinks the result of its actions is going to be. I don't know that any of that's foolproof, but we have a toolkit available there that we don't have with other people. And so Jeffrey Irving's debate work, for example, um, Beth Barnes and others have looked at this, where if you're trying to essentially depose a language model, you have access to things that you can't do with real people. For example, you can ask it a question and then roll the model back and ask it a second question and surface contradictions that it can't wriggle out of. Because you can say, actually, no, I already asked you that question in a parallel timeline and you said this. Interesting. <laughs> um, things like there are very interesting mechanisms that become available that we don't have access to with people in virtue of being able to actually kind of manipulate, you know, view the weights, roll the model back, et cetera. So, Maybe. Maybe that's enough. That's the question. Sounds like a good Black Mirror episode, I guess, written from the perspective of the AI. <laughs> that's yeah. maybe trying, trying to get away with some deception, but uh, yeah, being outsmarted. Yeah, of all, you interviewed, I guess, a lot of people for the book. I'm guessing dozens? About 100, yeah. About 100, okay, yeah. I guess of all of the people you spoke to, maybe like whose overall view do you feel closest to personally? Was there anyone who you're like, yeah, this is, this is the person who's speaking sense? That's a good question. The person who comes to my mind is Dario. And I say that because when I started working on this book, I had this hunch that the technical AI safety agenda and the sort of fairness, accountability, transparency agenda were really part of the same project, that it's this question of we want to make our ML systems do what we want. And, you know, that affects the sort of six parameter linear classifiers that do parole recommendations that also affects the sort of 100 billion parameter language models. But it's kind of the same project. That view was not widely held at the time. In fact, it was pretty polarizing, I would say. About half the people that I talked to agreed and half disagreed. So Dario was one person where when I kind of floated that hypothesis very early on was like, yeah, you know, it's like it's underappreciated that even at a technical level, these are really intimately related problems. I think that view has also aged well, not to be too immodest about it, but I think more people have come to think that than, than have gone the other way. And I also, um, I think his concrete problems paper showing that, again, this is very like early seminal stuff, but showing that what people were worried about who were thinking more abstractly about AI safety, that this could all be cashed out in the language of actual ML problems that, you know, we're essentially shovel ready for the ML community. You know, we can, we can work on robustness to distributional shift. We can work on transparency and explainability. That was an intuition that I also shared. And I think there's also uh, 
Within the community, the opinions differ on whether AGI is coming by way of the standard kind of deep learning ML regime, or if there's going to be some paradigm shift. And I think of him and others, obviously, as part of this camp that's saying like, no, I think what's coming is coming in in familiar terms. It's not going to be some unimaginable other thing. Yeah. So then the agenda is to make the things that we have now aligned and then just keep aligning all of the new things as they appear, like uh, being, you know, steps forward on what existed previously, but it's still recognizable. Yeah. Yeah. Dario was uh, the guest on episode two. Of the oh, show. wow. So, yeah. He got in on the ground floor. Um, yeah, a very, a very popular episode uh, at the time. And I think still to this day, I expect he's super busy setting up his new thing, having left OpenAI. But uh, yeah, fingers crossed I can get a couple of hours with him uh, sometime in the next year or two to, to find out where he's at. Yeah. Were there any people you interviewed who you spoke with who thought this person's just clearly wrong? I really just disagree. Or I think they're obviously, obviously wrong. Good question. Um, <laughs> Maybe you don't have to name names. <laughs> I may not. Uh, I may not divulge. Um, there were certainly disagreements, you know, within the community of people saying, you know, off the record, I don't think that this agenda is going to bear fruit. And sometimes those people came around. Sometimes they didn't. And yeah, I mean, w- one of my favorite examples of this, which is didn't happen to me personally, but Bean Kim at Google Brain, a mentor of hers, circa 2012, 2013, said oh, you want to do your PhD thesis on explainability and interpretability in neural networks? Like, don't worry about it. You know, we just, we train, we optimize them. They do what we want. What's the problem? And not only did she persist in, you know, despite that feedback, but ultimately that person became an interpretability researcher. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I see. So they they came around over the process of writing a book. They changed their mind. Yeah, I I was going to say, are there any people you interviewed who really were committed to the idea that there is not a problem here or that the problem is so trivial that it's just going to be solved? And it sounds like maybe there were a bunch of these people back in 2016, but then by 2020, <laughs> there was very fewer of them. Yeah, I think there are fewer now. You know, I framed the book in a way where I tried to sidestep as much of the debate aspect of these questions as possible. My attitude was, you know, I'm going to present this as a series of stories. And rather than making the case in a debatey way, I'm just going to tell you a bunch of stories. And by the end, you're going to have been, you know, drawn to this conclusion, sort of on your own, on your own recognizance or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah, that's very interesting. So it seems there's a bunch of different clusters of views among people who think about AI and the, the long term future, and I guess one cluster that we haven't of views that we haven't really talked about that much is those held by people who are associated with the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, uh, MIRI. I think they tend to think. Well, I guess some some of the views that I associate with that group of people is firstly like potentially like very rapid in, increases in AI capabilities rather than just boring linear predictable ones thinking that it's just not possible to make current models of AI, current approaches to developing AI safe as they become much more powerful. And I guess also thinking of really advanced superhuman AIs as potentially changing the world in dramatic ways, like very quickly, rather than just being kind of gradually integrated into society in a way that feels (laughs) intuitively safer. I guess I got the impression from the book that you spoke with several people, I guess, there, or at least at least one person there. Yeah, do you have a view on like, you know, could they could they be right? Uh, It seems like their view isn't dominant, but it's held by like a non-trivial number of people. And it's like a very alarming view if it were to be true. And I guess I'm just not sure what to make of it because I maybe I don't have the technical chops to really evaluate. My personal opinion is 
Yeah, I don't I don't share any of those views that you articulated. I think it will be a quote unquote slow takeoff. I think it will come in the form of something that looks pretty familiar to present day ML or is at least a you know continuous with that. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. The evidence I have says that we sort of are up to the task of aligning present day systems. Now, that all being said, the stakes are so high. Do you want to bet your life on it? That I'm very relieved to know that they're pursuing that that approach. And frankly, you know, how many people work there? Like 25 or something? 20, 30, something like that. That's probably too small of an investment to make in heading off the sorts of future that they're worried about. I, I'd rest easier if, you know, they were 10 several times hundred <laughs> people yeah. were thinking about it. So yeah. from my perspective, you know, that camp should probably have more resources rather than fewer. But I don't personally share that view. And I also, from where I'm standing, it seems like the preponderance of the evidence has fallen on the side of you know, the advances that we're getting are coming through kind of a continuation of the current paradigm. It's been interesting. I don't know. They um, they just released a statement at the end of 2020 saying something to the effect of we've hit a dead end. Like whatever agenda we've been pursuing for the last few years, we think it's kind of dried up and we're not sure what comes next. And I I don't know. It's been interesting for me, you know, following some of their thinking they made a turn circa 2015 towards a more kind of quote-unquote conventional ML orientation and then pivoted back away, but then have now decided that you want to pivot again. So, I mean, I'm I'm really glad that they're part of the ecosystem, and I think we need unorthodox approaches to be part of the portfolio as much as anything. So I, I'm, I am curious to see kind of what's the next turn for them. Yeah, I thought it was a really brave and very cool that they were that they just posted <laughs> posted on their website saying we've been working on this line of research for some time and it seems like it's a it, it was maybe a mistake to go down this path or at least it hasn't worked out ex post so we we've got to figure out something different yeah it'd be great if <laughs> great if more people were so transparent and upfront about things like that because it's just it's the nature of research that you can't tell whether things are going to work out before you do them uh, totally if, if you knew if you knew <laughs> you already would have done it yeah, I would. I would love to interview some people from there. I I, I have invited them on, um, so that so that people know. But I, coming on the show just like doesn't fit with their overall strategy. It's not a high priority for them because uh, they've 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 got their own thing, and then that's totally fine. No, they they don't owe me an interview. But fingers crossed, we'll be able to get someone to properly represent that on the on the program at some point. Yeah, I think I agree with you. It, it seems like probably their paradigm is missed. Oh, it's like it's less likely to be right <laughs> than to be wrong, but. Given the stakes, even if it's very likely that, uh, like the Dario Amadei view is right, you really want to have a red team out there to sound the alarm and, yeah. to, like, try, and to try to persuade people if it turns out that that's wrong, and to try to get people to realize early enough that this agenda isn't going to work and that we need a really big different approach. And yeah, and and to be fostering heterodox thinking that seems like a really valuable uh, thing. I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, in general, I have my views, and I'm very glad that people who don't share those views are doing their work. You know, that's part of the, I think it takes a kind of a portfolio strategy. Yeah. Are there any other kind of clusters of opinion or kind of visions for how things might play out that it's worth worth mentioning that you found from talking to so many people? I mean, there's the skeptical camp that says... Like people who just think it's just not going, not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. And I don't agree with that either. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the, the skeptical position has not, in my view, aged well in terms of the sorts of things that 
people have actually committed themselves to claiming we're far off. I think, you know, it's important that the skeptical mindset is part of the equation because I think it's useful to be thinking about, you know, the things that AI can't do. And I think that's very generative, you know, for, for science as well as safety specifically. But it feels like there has been a conspicuous amount of goalpost moving. And again, it's like, if the skeptics are right, then we we as a society will have wasted like a few tens of millions of dollars <laughs> researching something that, you know, it was just an insurance policy. Yeah. And I mean, what's the harm of that? Yeah, it will. Be, <laughs> well, it will be a waste if it never happens. But if it will happen later, then it's just like, well, we just did it sooner. We did some of this work sooner than we needed to, which seems like even less of a way. Like, actually, it's just kind of fine. Yeah, it's it's weird to me, given how I mean, the field has grown considerably even in the last several years but as a percentage of humanity's attention it's still quite small so it's very strange for me to hear people arguing that we shouldn't worry about it meaning like you know several dozen people in the world that are thinking about it should think about something else i think that's crazy yeah, yeah. so maybe you spoke to some people who thought general artificial intelligence is impossible, perhaps that we'll never build machines that can mimic what humans can do. Or maybe that just isn't actually a common or like a, a view that people really hold that much these days. What was it more that they thought oh, it's a hundred years away rather than 10 years away? Was that the more common? Yeah. I mean, people say that I, I wasn't that motivated to interview them. <laughs> because, <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't share that view, but I, I didn't want the book to become about a debate. To, yeah. I, I was, more inclined to say there's a story to be told about what we are doing. And I'm just going to tell the story. People are, you know, there's this, an interdisciplinary field being born. There's this incredible movement. There is this first set of really tangible results. And I think there's more than a book's worth to talk about there. And the people who aren't worried about it won't read the book anyway. So I don't have to spend too much time trying to persuade them. But I, I will say, I mean, the book deliberately, and, and you and I in this conversation kind of skipped the first third. And the first third has the more kind of familiar present day issues of kind of racial bias, issues with hiring, you know, resume screening tools, issues with stereotyped use of language and language models, things like that, and issues in kind of the medical domain. So more familiar problems. And that set of issues, you know, is deliberately part of the book and is deliberately at the beginning of the book, in part because it's kind of an on-ramp for people who have never thought seriously about, you know, safety issues from self-driving cars, let alone AGI. But the idea that someone is put in jail because this, you know, program was learned on the wrong data or that someone's cancer diagnosis gets messed up or something like that, it's a way to kind of lead people's intuitions. It's sort of an intuition pump, basically, from here's all these things that are really happening, and now let's kind of gently shift the focus into the near-term future, and you can see how that sort of thing, but worse, is going to be on the way. And so that, that was a deliberate strategy. And for me, it was a, I, I was a little bit more inclined to persuade people by osmosis than by kind of an explicit like point-counterpoint. 
Yeah, we wrote up uh, wrote up questions for the for the full first third, but then I decided that we uh we just didn't have time. And um, I feel like listeners might know a lot about the, the first third of the book. Or I felt like I'd, I'd heard because it's like it's things that are happening very much today. I, I, you literally read about these topics all the all the time in the news. But I guess for people who haven't been following that in in, in detail, it is like super useful for them to realize that this isn't a sci fi thing. This is literally all of these issues are all starting to happen now, and we have to fix those things. And then we have got to fix the things that are coming next, and then the things after that. Yeah, there's no escape. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we're maybe ready to retire some of the thought experiments that the field of AI safety needed, you know, at the beginning of the 2010s, like the paperclip maximizer. We don't need the hypotheticals when we have just this like bevy of real catastrophes to point to. So for better or worse, it's easier to make that the case now. Yeah. We've talked about GPT-3. Are there any other kind of recent developments or breakthroughs or papers that you've been excited by or concerned about since you delivered the manuscript? Yeah, I've been very interested in some of the work that's happening at OpenAI by people like Daniel Ziegler and others on kind of fine-tuning language models or doing these sort of interactive feedback procedures to get kind of task-specific performance, like summarization, for example. I think that work has been very interesting. Obviously, MuZero has been kind of the latest iteration of the model-based reinforcement learning stuff coming out of DeepMind that's getting more general. What does MuZero do? Is that the StarCraft one? MuZero is, no, it's, this is, um, it plays Go and Chess and Shogi and Atari. Mm. Ah, okay. So it's, so it's the same learning process underlying its ability to learn all of these different skills. Yeah. So in particular, it takes sort of the, not exactly the final frontier of hard-coded stuff, but one of the remaining vestiges of hard-coded stuff from AlphaZero and learns that from data as well, which is the actual world model. So previously, in order to do this Monte Carlo tree search, you would have this kind of world model where this little game engine that would say like, okay, I make a move, then my opponent gets to make a move, and these are the possible moves available to them, and then it'll be my turn again, and blah, blah, blah. And likewise with Atari, you know, you have this little Atari emulator that's churning out, you know, here's the next state if you take this, hit this button or whatever. The idea being, what if you could actually learn that emulator from scratch and create a representation of the environment, learn the dynamics of that environment as it applies to this kind of implicit representation that you yourself have built? And so I think that's potentially very, very powerful for thinking about you know, how to do that more sort of causal reasoning of, you know, what, what does the world look like when I take this action, when you don't have access to, you know, an emulator. Uh, So the real world requires us to simulate the effects of our behavior in our own mind, right? Because we can't just run the world. So, yeah. So I think that that is a, a really exciting frontier. Yeah, along the same lines, is there anything that you've kind of changed your mind about? Or is there any, yeah, places you've changed your minds or learned something really important since delivering the manuscript? Are there any errors in the book, perhaps? I'm trying to think. So yeah, I mean, I, I delivered the book to my editor in October of 2019. And it just, this is, it tells you how <laughs> slow it is to publish a book, right? So <laughs> it went to line editing in October of 2019. And then we line edited it. It went to copy editing in January 2020. We copy edited it. It went to typesetting in March of 2020. Then we proofread it 
And then by the time the book was manufactured, it was like June of 2020. And so you have this kind of like an annealing process. You have this window that just starts closing in terms of your ability to make changes, you know, or the changes you can make get smaller. And eventually, once the book is typeset, you can only replace a piece of text with another piece of text that's the same shape <laughs> because it has to fit in the same part of the page, um, which as a writer is kind of a fascinating little constraint. Yeah. So you do your best to try to keep track of the critical things as, you, as your ability to change the text gets more and more difficult. I mean, certain things about the book, you know, I focus on a previous generation of language model, which is the word embedding models, rather than the kind of modern transformer models. So, you know, if I were to rewrite the book from scratch today, obviously there would have been more about that. But I think the the basic premise is there. I mean, that this is kind of the agenda that we're on. And I think the 2020 work of people like Paul Cristiano and Jan Leica and, and Stuart Russell really does extend from the wheels that were in motion, you know, at that time. I think one of the one of the biggest changes is that I think alignment research is starting to become applied. Like the the theoretical rubber is hitting the road in a way that is is quite interesting. Like we're actually seeing as I said companies like Twitter using these sort of IRL-ish systems. We're seeing more collaborations, like more papers being co-authored between people in the technical AI safety community, like at Chai in Berkeley, with people at Partnership on AI, you know, this industry group, or people at actual tech companies. We're seeing more papers, for that matter, co-authored between people in the technical AI safety community and the FATML community. So I think there's a maturing of the field that's taken place. It's becoming a little bit more of a piece, I would say, with the kind of like quotidian ML that's happening at... Uh, at companies everywhere. Yeah. For people in the audience who are perhaps fairly young or fairly open-minded and are interested in contributing to solving this problem, are there kind of any important challenges or research agendas or I guess disciplines that you would like to perhaps draw to their attention as something that they should think about potentially working to contribute to? Yeah. I mean, one of my hopes writing this book is that it would be like a kind of signal flare or a kind of beacon that would reach people who were undergraduates or even high school students thinking about, okay, what do I want to do with my life? And to really announce, like, there's a lot of really important and really exciting things that are happening in this area. There's a lot of ways to pitch in. You know, I think there's an an amazing interdisciplinarity to this set of questions. So I can imagine someone getting, doing a computer science bachelor's degree and then getting a JD and, you know, doing policy or regulatory work, but having that kind of technical literacy. Same thing, I think there are a lot of connections to cognitive science, developmental psychology. I think those connections are only going to get deeper over time because, you know, my my position is that, you know, we, we really are tapping into some of the quote unquote laws of intelligence, so to speak. And, you know, the channels are only going to kind of open up more and sort of flow more between these existing fields. Yeah, that's something I'd heard from people before, but uh, I, I wouldn't have been able to come up with that many examples of it. But the book has so many of them, examples of ways that we're learning about people from machines and, and machines by learning it from about people. And yeah, the, the social problems that, that come along with the technical issues. And yeah, so I think there is kind of this windfall potentially of all, all of these insights that are just kind of hanging out in adjacent fields, ready to be shaken off the tree, so to speak. 
you know, I'm thinking about, for example, Julie Shaw, who's um, roboticist at MIT. She's done a lot of work on how do you get humans and robots to work closely together on a factory line, like literally elbow to elbow, passing things back and forth. And she had this insight that, oh, you know, there's an entire literature from like the military, from the medical community on human team training. How do you get like a battalion of soldiers to work really well together or a pilot and the co-pilot? And it turns out there were a bunch of best practices in that literature that no one in robotics was using. And you could just pluck them straight straight from that pre-existing domain. So I, to me, there's a kind of this exhilarating rush that more and more of these disciplines are going to be sort of talking to each other. I find myself just getting very confused about the terminology because there's so many different kind of similar designs and perhaps I don't understand them deeply enough. There's like neural networks, uh, deep neural networks, a deep Q network, reinforcement learning. I guess we've got machine learning and then artificial intelligence. Yeah. Uh, is there any way of like breaking down one by one, like what these things are and, and, and how they're different? Yeah. Okay. So I think about it as being kind of like a superset subset thing. So I would say AI is the superset and, you know, we could have like a big semantic battle on how exactly we would define it, but, you know, making machines do quote unquote intelligent stuff. You know, there are many, many approaches to that historically and even at present and, Machine learning is one of those approaches. So I think of machine learning as a subfield of AI. They're used somewhat synonymously today, but that's partly just because machine learning is the most active and promising path, although it's not it's not, it's the not space. totally coextensive with AI. Yeah. For example, I would argue that something like Monte Carlo tree search, which is used in game playing, is not itself machine learning, but it is an AI technique, you know, these sort of search algorithms. I guess people have also tried, for example, just producing a incredibly long lists of facts, <laughs> uh, as yes. a way of teaching AI, which, which I guess hasn't really worked out. But that would be an example, I guess, of AI without machine learning. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And the, the whole era of good old fashioned AI, the sort of symbolic approach, the sort of expert systems approach, There's there's been a lot of, you know, different fronts there. And we can hybridize them. So, you know, AlphaGo Combine neural networks and Monte Carlo tree search. So, you know, getting a little bit of both. But then machine learning itself kind of within this superset of AI is really the idea of a system that learns from experience or learns from data rather than being explicitly programmed. Yeah. And so I guess maybe under that, then we have neural networks as like one design of like how the data gets processed. And then I suppose reinforcement learning is one way of training the weights and like structuring the neural network. Yeah, I would say, you know, a neural network is a class of function approximator. So a linear regression and a neural network are in the same category in that sense. And reinforcement learning, I think of as really a problem statement. It's a way of defining what type of problem you want to solve, namely you're in an environment that has states. You're in a state, you can take one of several actions that takes you to another state with a different set of actions. At some point or points along the way, you get these rewards, and then you have to figure out how to get as much reward as possible. So that's that's kind of a problem definition. And you can solve reinforcement learning with or without the use of neural networks. So there's, you know, the old school reinforcement learning is what's called tabular, where you just keep a giant table of like, okay, I was in state 100, I took action five, I got three points, and I ended up in state 41. 
Now, you can imagine that this does not scale to any sort of reasonable problem, only would work in a toy problem. But it's just an example. You can, you can do it entirely without neural networks. So then what is a deep Q network? So Q learning is an approach to reinforcement learning. So if reinforcement, it's complicated because they sound similar, but one is the problem and one's the solution. So <laughs> reinforcement learning is the problem. Q learning is yeah. a solution to it. Okay, so Q learning is part of a family of solutions to reinforcement learning problems called value function problems or value learning. So basically, I feel like we need some kind of whiteboard here, but within reinforcement <laughs> so learning, it's a weakness of the medium. <laughs> there are essentially two categories. So how how do you try to solve a reinforcement learning problem? There's one one approach which is called value learning, where you learn the value of being in a given state, and then it makes it obvious which action you should take. You take the action that gives you the reward plus puts you in a state with the highest value. There's an alternate approach, which is policy learning, where you don't learn the explicit value of doing things. You just learn what to do. So the analogy I would use is like value learning is like developing a spidey sense of like, this seems like a good situation. This seems like a bad situation. Policy learning is like muscle memory. It's like you know what to do, but you don't necessarily know exactly how good or bad it is. In reality, these two things can go hand in hand and often do. Q learning is in the value category. So the Q stands for quality. And <laughs> basically the idea is you want to take the action which will give you the best sum of the immediate reward plus the expected rewards available from the state that you end up in after you take that action. And in particular, it involves the, the maximum amount of points possible. I see. So, so this was a method used to solve Atari games or to, to play Atari, most Atari games at superhuman level. I suppose you were thinking like, you know, should I move right or left or jump? And it would evaluate this based on a combination of the immediate reward that was measurable plus an assessment, a guess as to how many points you would get in future after that point based on evaluating the state that you ended up in. That's right. That's right. Okay. And so Excellent. the deep Q networks part is using a neural network as the function approximator for Q learning. Okay. So, <laughs> and, and, and the deep part kind of refers to having lots of neurons and maybe structuring them in levels. So you've got like the, That's right. the first level that things cascade through and then they, then in general, like the messages go down to a next level. That's right. And I, and I guess not upwards or like skipping a level or rarely. There are some architectures that have cycles in them, like LSTMs that are what's called recurrent, but let's just pretend that doesn't exist <laughs> and just think of it as going like in one direction only. So yeah, deep networks, yeah, in the 90s, they were wide. In the 2020s, they're deep. Um, so yeah, that's... They're like genes. They're yeah, genetic. yeah. So zooming out, yeah. So like deep neural networks are a way of one type of neural network. DQN uses neural networks as a function approximator for Q-learning. Q-learning is a type of value learning, which is a way to solve reinforcement learning, which is a sub problem within machine learning, which is a sub thing within AI. So when we've now popped, popped the stack, we're back to where we started. Okay, totally clear. Um, <laughs> Hope so. Hope it's somewhat clear. All right, totally different topic just as we uh, approach, the, approach the finishing line. What's your biggest critique of the effective altruism community? Or do you, do you have any thoughts on, on how it can do better? I guess you've interviewed people who are part of or associated with, with effective altruism, quite a few of them for the, for, for the book. And I'm curious to know your impressions. 
Yeah, I mean, I, it's funny. I think um, effective altruism and AI safety have this interesting relationship. You know, to sort of make it aphoristic, I would say, you know, EA is about bringing optimization to ethics, and AI safety is about bringing ethics to optimization. It's <laughs> <laughs> a nice turn of phrase. So yeah, and, and many of you know, there many of these people from these communities are the same people or are friends with each other. So there's there's a very deep connection there. You know, I, I interviewed Will and Toby, and I think there are very interesting connections between this project of trying to be rigorous about helping people. To me, there is kind of a parallel to this question of how do we operationalize these procedures for getting human normativity into machines? That's that, that sort of rigorous approach. You know, it's been interesting talking to Will over the years, and one of the things that he has been concerned about is, you know, to some degree has the EA movement uh, in danger of being a victim of its own success. A lot of these opinions that people had that were heterodox at the time have themselves become orthodoxies <laughs> that are maybe in need of shaking up. I remember being worried about AI safety back in 2008. I think it was when I yeah. first got into it. And then, yeah, I've lived to see the world come around <laughs> and agree with my, God, I guess how you... Oh. <laughs> it must have been 21, 21. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, is, which is interesting. But then you don't want to don't start resting on your laurels and just assume that everything, that just because people agree with you now that you were right or that you're right about everything else as well. Yeah, that's right. So yeah, I think that's as much of a, a challenge for them as for anyone. Yeah. It's making me think I got to write a blog post of stuff that EA's gotten wrong. Yeah, to like keep in mind and try to learn, I guess, from, yeah, uh, see if there's any patterns to the yeah. projects that were funded that shouldn't have been or the ideas that were popular that maybe were mistaken. Because it, it's always so much easier to remember and so much more pleasant to recall the ways that <laughs> you were right early on <laughs> rather than ways that you were wrong that you totally forget about now because no one talks about it. Right, or you change your mind and so you just haven't thought of in that way for a long time. Yeah, yeah I mean, there, there's sort of path-dependent things too where, you know, initially there was a lot of press that was made in the EA community about, you know, oh, maybe everyone should go work at a hedge fund and then just give your salary to charity. And that that may have held, but in a contingent way, because EA was sufficiently cash constrained that the marginal impact of another $100,000 was pretty big. And now maybe the movement has reached a level of maturity where it's more talent constrained than capital constrained, for example. And so the logic shifts, but that that change happens somewhere along the way with the growth of the field. And you have to remember to revisit those old models and realize that kind of the assumptions don't hold anymore. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's a bunch of stuff that 80,000 hours has gotten wrong specifically. I guess I won't, won't give a uh, list here. <laughs> that perhaps should go in a different episode. But yeah. Things that we either substantively got wrong at, at the time or that we communicated really poorly. <laughs> and then it ended up having mm-hmm. negative consequences, even if we were like right in some sense. Yeah. One, one final question. What was it like reading reading the book? I imagine it must be really exhausting reading out something that's that's so long, and, it, and presumably it's not your profession <laughs> reading out books. Yeah, no, it's funny. So there's a lot of things I could say about that. In this particular case, it was compounded by the weirdness of COVID, and so going into a recording studio all day was a little bit nerve wracking, just because you don't want to be indoors with anyone. Although you're mostly locked in there by yourself, which is good. I've read all three of my books, and it's important to me to kind of deliver the that last mile. I think so much of nonfiction is about the way that emphasis is placed, you know, within a sentence, within a paragraph, 
I mean, in some ways you could argue the entire craft of nonfiction is just about placing emphasis, you know, mm-hmm. like which papers do you highlight, which people's work do you spotlight, et cetera. And, you know, you can certainly lose a lot of credibility by mispronouncing someone's name or, or highlighting yeah. the part of the sentence that's the obvious part. So I, it was always important to me to, to kind of take it all the way. But it is a very weird experience. It's very physically taxing. Your voice just hurts. I mean, you go totally. home at the end of the day and, uh, you know, my wife will be like, how, how was it? And I'll just be like, it was good. I don't want to talk. <laughs> did, did you read any sentences out for the book and be like oh no i wish i'd written that differently uh realizing as you're saying it out loud that it's not not, not what you wanted it to be so i believe i was able to catch like a, a copy editing error where someone at my publisher had resolved these word comments between me and the copy editor in a way that left a fragment of one edit and a fragment of the other and i was actually able to catch that in time so for me, reading the audiobook is the sort of the last sanity check, which is helpful. Occasionally, stuff gets through even that, uh, which is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, the fact that you can read the entire book out loud and not find any clanging errors that you regret is uh, a testament to the to the care that's gone into crafting it and how many how many eyes have, have looked over it. So I, can, I could definitely recommend the book to, to, to listeners. Well, thank you. Yeah, I appreciate that. My guest today has been Brian Christian, and the book is The Alignment Problem. Thanks so much for coming back on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Brian. It's my pleasure. Yeah, thank you. If you enjoyed that conversation, uh, I can obviously recommend grabbing a copy of The Alignment Problem uh, to learn more. And of course, we've also got plenty of relevant links on the page associated with this episode. It would also be really helpful if you could take just a second to think about whether you know someone who would appreciate being told that this interview uh, or that this show uh, exists. Uh, Personal recommendations really are one of the best ways uh, for us to get the word out there about what we're doing to the people who would most benefit from finding out. Oh, and just a reminder about Effective Altruism Global Reconnect, uh, which is coming up on the weekend of March 20th and 21st. Uh, As I said at the outset, it is free. Our very own 80,000 Hours podcast will be featured and you can apply to go at eaglobal.org. If you have already taken steps to have more impact with your donations uh, or your career, you are very much in the target audience for that event. So don't miss out. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our website and made by Sophia Davis-Vogel. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.